It's the Mixed Martial Arts Hour. It's Monday. Monday, 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 September 10th, 2018. And Caesar is home. Welcome, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the MMA Hour right here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. I know it has been a while, but we are back in the saddle again and so much to get to. We're going to have the sound off with all of your tweets and calls. We were apparently inundated with them, so thank you for all of those. We'll get to a bunch of them today, and we've got a whole lot of guests, too. Valentina Shevchenko is going to be here. Nico Montano, I believe we have the exclusive on that. She'll be here as well. Eddie Bravo is going to be here to talk about what's happening with him in the world of jiu-jitsu. And then Dean Thomas as well. He was the coach of Tyron Woodley. He has been for some time, and he gave him his black belt over the weekend. So a lot to get to. As always, we take your tweets using the hashtag TheMMAHour and the number to call, 844-866-2468. Yes, indeed. A lot. Now, there's been a bit of a schedule change. If you're looking at the rundown on the post on MMA Fighting, I don't know if it's been updated yet. We were going to start the show with Valentina Shevchenko. We're going to shuffle things around. We're actually going to do the sound off earlier in the show, and now Valentina Shevchenko is going to be on at about 1.35 or so. So it'll go, in terms of guest order, Let's see, it'll go Dean Thomas, Nico, Eddie Bravo, Valentina. Valentina was first. I guess now she's going to be last. So that's a bit of an adjustment. Sorry for that. We had to make some changes here last minute, but we got it done. I, I am so sorry I've been gone for so long. I had a very epic vacation, but it is over. It is time to get back to work. And we have to bring in my man, my arroz uh, to my frijoles, the arequipe to my pan, the chambea to my ala. Let's go to the screen here. Let's bring in one Danny Segura. Danny. Yo. QO. How are you, my friend? Todo bien, todo bien. You? I'm doing quite well. I, I came into the office today. You were playing some salsa? I was, yeah. Who was it? Was, was it Joe Arroyo? Who was it? Grupo Nietzsche. Ah. Yeah. You know what? It got you going. You've been fired it, up since I saw you. It, and guess what? Ah. Two iced coffees. <laughs> You're going to have a heart attack. I want I, you to be I, high I, energy. I don't yes. want you to be uh, cardiac arrest. Oh, well, a little bit of both, you know. Uh, good weekend, I'm hoping? Uh, yeah, pretty good weekend. Right, so UFC 228 was a great card. Uh, I'm curious, your trip, how was it? Anything combat related? Did you see any, any fights? The, la or? The, the very last thing that I care about when uh, I'm on vacation yeah. is MMA. Although I did see, uh, I did see some jiu-jitsu gyms in Greece. I went, to, I went nice. to Athens, Greece, and then I went to uh, Beirut, Lebanon. And then I was just going to keep it like that, but we actually found some super cheap tickets to Barcelona. Uh, once you're in Europe, it's actually not expensive to get around. Yeah. Uh, and so we went to Barcelona, Spain. And, um, well, anyway, it, it was it was wonderful. But, no, I purposely stayed away from MMA as much as possible. I will say this. I have an update I wanted to share with the audience and with okay. you. So we have our Caesar here made by our buddy Plastic Cell. And we've had to prop him up because I keep forgetting the stand. Oh, oh. I thought you were going to say you brought the stand. I brought the stand. Oh. Here it is. So let's do this very quickly if this we is can. historic. Because we have a lot of work to get to here. How did you remember? Uh, I was in my office at home, and it was just sitting there. Because I always set it up and then just forget to take it. Yeah. So what I did was I put it next to, like, my wallet and my keys and everything else. There was no way I could. Let's see if this goes. Man, you, you really needed that vacation, huh? Yeah, dude. All of a sudden, you're remembering the stand. I know. Here we go. Look at that. Finally. Huh? Nice. Bam. Nice one, right? There we go. Look at that. And I have one more thing I wanted to add. Now, we don't have a stand for it today. We're going to put one in. But... Um, I was in Biblos. Lebanon, you know Biblos? No, never well, heard you of you know it. the word biblioteca, right? Uh, yeah. Which means library in Spanish or uh, Bible. Uh, Biblos is where one of the first 
um, alphabets in a, in a place was discovered. They had 22 letters there. I think when the Phoenicians showed up, so the place is called Biblos. It's actually the home of the alphabet. Well, depending on the language, obviously. Right. But um, I found this flag there. I got it for uh, one. Oh, how much did I get it for? One thousand Lebanese pounds, which is about, I don't know, seventy cents or something. <laughs> in any case, um, I got this little flag. And uh, if you don't know, my mom grew up in Lebanon. She died tragically in two thousand three, and I'd never been. I'd actually never been there. I've been all over the world. But I'd never been there. So I finally got to go. Not from Biblo. She's from Beirut. But um, but I got my little flag here. So we're going to put a stand for it. And look, everyone's like, you're American. Where's your American flag? We've got 55,000 of them on the stage here, on the on the set. There's my picture from boot camp. There's me right there. We got a million of them. But I wanted to represent because it meant a lot to me. It was really important for my heritage, to be quite honest, to go and see where my mom was from. I got to go see my mom's old neighborhood. Oh, she sweet. She actually grew up next to the uh, Saudi Arabian embassy. So I tried to take pictures, and then soldiers with guns got real bitter at me. So <laughs> I had to leave. But hey, you got to do whatever it takes for the gram, right? Yeah, you know, I got to see where my mom grew up. You know, it's kind of crazy. So she grew up in an area called um, Ras Beirut, and uh, it's not too far from the sea. And um, anyway, so we'll put that up here. Yeah, nice. Yeah, kind of cool. All right, for now, I'll put that. How about like this? Do that right like this. How about that? Oop. Well, you know what? Good enough. All right, we got a lot of calls. We have a we lot of uh, tons. tons of calls, yeah. right? All the, uh, how, how are the calls this time? Good. We got another lady caller. I did you did you cajole one of your friends into calling? How, no, 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 no. I didn't. How can this possibly? Uh, I be? think this caller was from L.A. If I'm not mistaken, All right. maybe. All right. Yeah. All right. So let's do this. We will get to the calls and the tweets a little bit later. As I said, we had to rearrange the show, so we're going to do the sound off here in just a minute, right? Yep. But for now, let's do this, my friend. Let's start the show off the way it deserves to be started. It's time for the weigh-in. Time now for the weigh-in here right now on the MMA Hour. No, no better way to kick off the show than with that. Let me uh, show a graphic on the screen, if I may. Danny, in the back, please put it up. I had sent it to you before the show. A lot of folks ask for reading recommendations, and I always want to give one. I'm not about to do a book review. I, I don't care about that, per se. So the graphic didn't work. All right, well, can you put it on the screen instead of this one, but like the front screen, the, the viewer screen? No? Yes? Potentially? Uh, in any event, there's a book called The Death of Expertise. It's written by a guy who goes by the name of Tom Nichols. You don't really need to know who he is. He was a longtime policy expert in Washington, D.C. on Russian affairs, teaches at the Naval War College and a bunch of other places. But um, the book was about something kind of interesting. It's about what, what is expertise? How do you obtain it? What, what, what verifies it? What are its limits? What are its failures? What are its purposes? What's its, what are the role of experts in society? Now, I, I don't care about any of that stuff, but there was one chapter about predictions. And in the book, he makes a central argument, namely that some measure of predictions are not only important and that you have to do them, but they might even be required by the job. However, that's really not what expertise is about. Expertise is about understanding the present and then historically why things have happened. Very little of it actually is looking forward. Some, yes, but really not much. It's about looking back and trying to piece together how events transpired, why, understanding events and people and the interactions between them and that kind of thing. That's really what expertise is, or if you're a biologist, uh, you know, why basic things happen in the 
organic world. You understand what I'm saying. It's about the president looking past. Very little of it is the predictive future because there are so many variables. It can be hard to get things right. And you might overemphasize certain uh, measures of your own expertise and really not understand uh, how the future will work or how your expertise could even be really helpful. You could misunderstand that. Now, why is that relevant to UFC 228? Because Tyra Woodley wins. You can show the, show the graphic if you want to show the people here for just a second. Tyron Woodley wins, and I saw some people saying things about Darren Till. And they were saying, well, the UFC got behind another one that just couldn't get it done. And, of course, he did lose. Um, but I'm not really mad at them for getting behind Darren Till. We're, weren't you excited by Darren Till? I know I was excited by Darren Till. Look at his social media numbers. Look at the numbers on videos that he's on. Look at the crowd response. People like Darren Till. People were interested in Darren Till. And then the fact of the matter is prospecting in MMA, even among experts at the UFC, is very difficult. Now, I realize they might be getting high, behind certain people, not necessarily out of good faith. We're just trying to figure out who's who. But out of bad faith, we like someone more than the next. But let's put that aside for just a minute. I'm not mad at the UFC for getting behind Darren Till, for getting behind exciting contenders. It's okay. Figuring out which ones are going to be massive successes is very, very difficult. And so did this one work out on Saturday? No. I still think he's got a bright future. At 25 years old, there's still a lot more he can do. But the point being is as follows. In terms of predicting the future, even the best organizations like the UFC, they're just going to get some things wrong. It's not possible to see into the future and understand exactly who's going to blow and who's not going to blow. But it got me to thinking about Tyron Woodley. So even though I'm not mad about the UFC making a really big push about Darren Till, it doesn't make a lot of sense that they're not now getting behind Tyron Woodley. Now, here's what I mean. Let's go over some of the numbers and some of the facts about him. He has KO'd Jay Huron, Josh Koscheck, and Robbie Lawler. He TKO'd Carlos Condit and Dong Hyun Kim. He beat the 185 title contender in Kelvin Gastelum. Now, the Marquardt and McDonald losses do count against him. All losses do. But that UFC 161 fight against Jake Shields, you can go back and watch it. That's a very different Tyron Woodley, you could have scored it for him anyway, and I would very much favor Tyron Woodley to beat today's Jake Shields. Nate Marquardt's not even in the sport anymore. And McDonald could be interesting. You look at some of the stats, people have asked, where does he rank among all-time welterweights, Tyron Woodley? Well, here are some facts in addition to the resume that I just gave you. Number one, Woodley has landed more significant strikes per minute than Matt Hughes. A lot of people say GSP is the all-time best welterweight, and I'm inclined to agree, but after that, it gets a little bit murky. Probably you think Hughes is too. Maybe you think Lawler is up there. It can be a bit of a debate, but if we're talking about Hughes, Woodley has landed, uh, has a better significant strikes per minute uh, figure than Matt Hughes. His takedown defense, Tyron Woodley's, is almost three times as good, 94% accuracy in terms of his own takedown defense. He is third all-time among welterweights, for knockdowns with 10. Matt Hughes isn't even on that list. You know where GSP is? He's tied for ninth. Tyron Woodley is third all-time in significant strike defense. Now, GSP is, pardon me, number one 
because he is GSP, but Hughes is not even on that list because he's second all-time in significant strikes absorbed. Now, what is the point in making all of this and, and reading all of these facts and figures and going over his resume? Here's my point. Once again, it is okay. It really is for the UFC to get behind exciting contenders. Darren Till was and still remains an exciting contender. You were excited. I was excited when he beat Donald Cerrone. And sure, the Wonder Boy fight wasn't necessarily going to blow the doors off everybody, but it was in Liverpool and they showed up and it felt like something big. And yeah, he missed weight. I, we all know the story, but you can't sit here and say there haven't been times in Darren Till's run in the UFC when you didn't get the spidey sense, when you didn't get a little tingle, when the hairs on the back of your neck didn't stand up for a time. It happened to almost all of us. Are you really going to be mad at the UFC for getting behind that guy? And by the way, did you see the BT Sport promo they did on him? It's about as good as they come. It's about as good as they come. But here's the truth. If prospecting is hard, and even experts get it wrong, it is impossible to not understand the value of Tyron Woodley. Look at his resume. <laughs> Look at his stats. We're talking about an all-time great in that division, and that division might just be the best one in the sport. I can't forgive them for not getting behind Tyron Woodley. Not now. The future is hard. The present and the past is quite knowable. What does Tyron Woodley need to do now to get corporate backing? And if you're asking what I'm talking about specifically, it's the lack of Dana White showing up at the post-fight press conference. Now, here's the truth. Maybe you watching, you know why he didn't show up. I don't know why he didn't show up. It could be there was a family emergency. Truly, I mean that. So I don't know. And if it was something like that, then it's a shame that he couldn't be there. But I understand. But if it's not that, then it's shameful he didn't show up. This is a guy whose resume, as I just indicated, is phenomenal. This is a guy who on Saturday held a exciting contenders to a whopping two strikes, submitted him in the second, made it look easy. This is a guy who's beaten the who's who in his division. This is a guy whose numbers back up him being at worst third or fourth best all-time at welterweight, maybe even second best. This is a guy who's a family man. This is a guy who is from a rough part of the country and found a way out. This is a guy who not only has been a good father, but comes from a good parent. This is a guy who pays for his own marketing. This is a guy who never gets in trouble. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> what has to happen for the lights to go on? Seriously, I'm, I, I, what, what else do I need to say to you? He knows how to do media. He's one of the best analysts on Fox. He pays for his own promotion. He has a show on TMZ for crying out loud. When he wins, he wins, for the most part, dominantly. His all-time resume, his body of work, is nearly beyond reproach. And no one backed him up 
on that night after the fight. Why is that important? It's not just a show of solidarity. It's more important than that. The basic idea is that you have these junctures in your career where everybody is paying attention and having third-party validation at that moment is so critical. It's not to say that if they come out later and do something for him, that it will be irrelevant. No, that's not what I'm saying. And again, maybe there is an explanation for why Dana White wasn't there. But what I do know is, best case scenario, an opportunity was missed. A big, big opportunity. This is a no-brainer. This is an easy call. This is very simple. And even his biggest detractors after Saturday are beginning to realize it is getting tiresome to criticize a guy who just keeps excelling. It, it just gets old and it wears thin and it doesn't really work anymore. If the fans can realize that, if the media, which in large part has already known that, can realize that, maybe corporate brass should too. And that he did it off of a 13-month layoff and held a guy who was basically a middleweight to two strikes and he can't even get a pat on the back at a press conference, it's either a shame or it's downright shameful. And that's the way in. All right. We have to do this. We have to change things up. There's the book, by the way. Can you put the book back up over Danny's face in particular? It looks good when it's covering him. <laughs> Covering him up. This is the book. It's called The Death of Expertise. Tom Nichols. Again, it's not about MMA. Uh, it's very digestible. You can read it probably very quickly. It's only 200 pages and some change. And uh, it goes over sp this predictive argument that, that I have been making. All right. With that out of the way, let's do it early. It is time for the sound off. All right. Oh, look at Danny getting some byline credit. Now you can take the five minutes off the thing. We'll do the calls first. Let's do the calls first, Danny, because I, I, we can always add tweets at the end. I don't know how things are going to go later. So why don't you come up on the screen here? Look, you can see with Luke Thomas and Danny Segura. I like that. Getting some credit. You know what? You deserve some. It's fair enough with me. We got switch camera angles here. There it is. All right. There we go. Put them up there. Hi, Danny. Yep. How are you? I just talked I'm to you. Doing well. I know. Do you agree with my, my uh, take on Tyron Woodley? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the stats are there. I mean, th this is the guy that's that's always fought. He's a very active champion. He shows up every time. And I understand there was some criticizing of, of Tyron Woodley early on when he first won the title. And he's like, I won GSP. I won Nick Diaz. And he was demanding certain things. But if you look at the press conference now, he's like, if anybody, whoever wants it can get it. Like, And he even said, I'm not going yeah, to call out anybody anymore because it doesn't matter. Exactly. I'm not saying Tyron hasn't made missteps. Everyone's made missteps. Of course. That's the point. Yep. But the point is, again, I don't know why Dana White wasn't there, and no one really does, and so you have to be careful. But either way, it's a, it's a bit of a tragedy. Yeah, I mean, this this guy just proved that he's going to be dominant for a while. He's 36, but, like, a, you know, yeah. a good 36. Yeah, super solid. So wouldn't you want to – keeping in mind that he's probably going to be champion for a bit, wouldn't you want to, you know, prop him up and make him, you know, uh, feel like a big asset of the UFC, you know, and make – you know. Make him feel like, uh, you know, like one of the greatest fighters ever. And it's easy to market. Oh, by the way, yeah. look how good he is. Right? Exactly. Super simple. All right. Yep. With that out of the way, let's get to these calls. You have screened them. We don't have a moment I to have. waste. Yep. Why don't you set up the first one, please? Cool. So we have a, a ladies first policy here in the MMA hour. Okay. So that's what we're going to go with. All right. Hey, Luke. Hey, Danny. This is MT from LA. Love the show. A long time listener, Luke. Uh, my question is, what do you think out of all the different ways to get into the UFC is the best, like the prestigious and most advantageous for the fighters? 
Um, I wonder, do the fighters get better contracts by winning the Ultimate Fighter, being scouted on looking for a fight, winning contract on the Contender Series, or just kicking ass in other promotions and building a name for themselves, and then being approached by the UFC? Um, which one do you think provides the best contract terms, exposure, and distinction? Uh, and also, what are your guys' thoughts on the Triple G Canelo fight um, mm. Saturday? Uh, I have Triple G winning for sure, but want to know what you guys think. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. What a great question that is, huh? Dude, that is a great question. Something I never really thought of. If you were a fighter, what do you think, and, you, and you're trying to get into the UFC, what do you no. think is the best way to get in? Well, given the three options that she had basically listed, which is Ultimate yep. Fighter, uh, Contender Series, of course, you can just be signed to a... Looking for a fight. Looking for a fight. You can also just be signed to a show, like to somebody at the regional scene. Like, right. It doesn't have to be a vehicle, per se. Um, for sure, you can ca- cross out the Ultimate Fighter, for sure, because those contracts have been known to be quite restrictive and yep. to suppress pay. So that's out of... Uh, I mean, yes, there's a degree of visibility that comes with it, but in terms of pay and compensation, probably not. So that's out. I don't know about the Contender Series, so I can't really say, although obviously we know guys like Sugar Sean O'Malley got some pretty great exposure. So certainly it's that. But I think the real answer is if you're a John Jones and you come in and you beat Andre Guzmao and you start blowing through people, that's a great way to get paid. But the reality is the Justin Gaethje, Eddie Alvarez model was probably always going to be your best. Look at what Hector Lombard got. I won't say which fighter it was, but there was a fighter in the UFC at the time who I was talking to back when I did the Spike TV show, and they sat down and they go, dude, did you see what numbers Hector Lombard's getting? And I'm like, no. He goes, I've never, ever seen a check like that. And this was somebody who was very important to the promotion. I think he was getting three or 400K for that first fight. Um, and did it ultimately pan out in a way that he should have? Yeah. You know, you can make that argument that it didn't. Point being is, when you're an acquisition, when you have to be acquired and you have some value in another organization, Danny, it's my impression that's far and away the best. Yeah. I mean, if you're able to make a name for yourself in MMA outside of the UFC, that's by winning a title, whether it was, you know, World Series of Fighter for Justin Gagey or Eddie Alvarez with Belt or Michael Chandler, you know, these guys, that that, that really is the way because you're a champion. Uh, worst comes to worst, if negotiations don't go your way with the UFC, you're still a champion in another promotion, you know, you're getting treated well. Um, and, you know, you can use that as leverage to get a, a pretty good contract. I would put the Ultimate Fighter as as the last uh, at this point. I mean, I think how, I would, how many guys have complained about the pay? Yeah. So many. I mean, I, I think at one point, maybe the Ultimate Fighter, like in the first 10 season, that, that was like, oh my God, if you're the Ultimate Fighter, that, that was a big deal. It was very prestigious, right? Yep. Uh, but that doesn't stand anymore. All right, what's next? Cool. Now let's talk about Tyron Woodley and uh, some UFC 228 topics. All right. What's going on, Luke? This is uh, Dylan from New Jersey. Um, just wanted to get your thoughts on Tyron Woodley's performance uh, this Saturday night against Darren Till. I feel like uh, everyone always wants to write off Tyron Woodley, but in my opinion, he's one of the greatest welterweights of all time. I really think that if him and George St. Pierre fought when George St. Pierre was in his prime, it would be a lot more competitive than people would think. Um, I think Tyron Woodley is approaching the GOAT conversation as 36 years old. and I mean, I feel like he's got plenty of years left. Just wanted to get what you think about his performance and uh, where he ranks among the greatest of all time in welterweight division and the whole UFC. Uh, thanks a lot. Another great call. Wow, I'm very impressed. Good job, y'all. Really appreciate that. That's great. Danny, here's what I would say. I don't know where you come down on this one. I would put him around two or three, and I would state the following. I know some folks had Jake Shields ahead of him. I, I, I know Jake Shields beat him, but I, I don't think the body of work at welterweight, as impressive as Shields' is, 
is ahead of Tyron Woodley's. I, I don't buy that. Um, more to the point, the real tension for me is between him and Hughes. Now, Hughes did a lot in that division. Hughes has some great numbers himself. I was very much cherry-picking in favor of Tyron Woodley, but I'm just trying to make the case for what stands out for him. Um, but the issue is, like, if you look at the guys Tyron Woodley has beaten, it's a much more difficult set of fighters he's run through. Now, there are some amazing wins on Matt Hughes' resume. Please, you know, folks are going to look at Hayato Sakurai and be like, who's that? Yo, when he beat Hayato Sakurai, that was a big deal, okay? And he kind of ran through Hayato Sakurai. But the point being is there are some, you know, Gil Castillos on there that aren't nearly the same level of title defense difficulty that Tyron Woodley has. So I could understand a case for Tyron at two, but I'm still going to lean just outside and say three. However, if he beats a Colby or something like that, at that point, you know, you have five title defenses, all of them being consecutive like that, I, I, I would have to put him second. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, where you and I defer is I, I recognize a lot more and I put a lot of stock on 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 achievement and accomplishment. Like if you get a prime Tyron Woodley and a prime Matt Hughes at the same time, there's no doubt Tyron Woodley's going to run through Matt Hughes, right? But it's different times. Um, so I think, you know, with Matt Hughes having more title defenses, that just has to put him ahead of Tyron Woodley. But again, Tyron Woodley has the chance to, to surpass that and, and challenge GSP maybe. I mean, he still has a, a lot to work with, but I mean, who knows how long he's going to be in the division for, you know? I, I still think GSP is markedly ahead, but to your yeah. point, I mean, you're beating 25-year-olds like that? Yeah. Yeah, you're really good. <laughs> yeah. All right, next. Hey, this is Josh from Lafayette, Louisiana. I was calling to say, do you think Till's loss in the end will be a good thing because it'll force him to move up to 185? Hmm. Didn't you want to go first on that one? Yeah. I see, I see you raring to go. What's up? They they asked him uh, in the post-fight conference. They were like, okay, so does this mean you're going to go up to 185? And he's like, that's the question. That's the real question. I made 169. The weight cut was easy. You know, so... I don't know if it if, if it'll force him to 185. I hope it does. Um, you know, so, so you I mean, want to see him at 185, despite the yes. fact that let me play devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. he, he he was 169. Like there was no problem making weight. That's true, but also you know Darren Till is like one of the toughest people out there uh, and mentally strong. I mean that guy. For him to say it was oh an easy wake up, it wasn't. He's just that tough, yeah. you know. Um, and if you look at, I think when when we went, uh, Casey and Esther were in, at the PI with, I believe Mark Ramundi was there as well. Um, I think they were shooting there until at his uh, open workout, like ten days out from the fight. And mm -hmm. man, he was looking rough. He was looking very rough. And. Also, I just want to add, I, I, in no way am I comparing my physique to Darren Tills, but we both idea. are. Yeah, we we both are twenty five years old. Twenty five years old, and you know something I've noticed myself like between twenty four and twenty five, like I, I wasn't even working out, and I just felt like I was getting bigger yeah. and heavier, and I was like, you know, what's going on? And people in my jujitsu is like, oh, you, you've been lifting. I'm like, yeah, sure, you know. Uh, so I think Darren Tills is the same is in the same you know range. Same thing happened with Max Holloway. Like all these guys are making weight. But all of a sudden, they're going into a body that's closer now to like a 30-year-old than it is to a 20-year-old, yep. you know? Yep. And, uh, you know, that's dangerous. And we've seen the issues that Max Holloway has had. So I think maybe this cut was fine for him. But moving forward, things are just going to get a lot, you know, uh, harder for Till. So There's there's no denying that middleweight's yeah. a better spot for him in terms of his size. Here's what I would say, though. Did he lose on Saturday because of a weight cut? Did he lose on Saturday because of a size 
uh, well, he had the differential in his favor, but I mean, like, was he so drained that um, this rendered him incapable of fighting up to his potential? No. Like, what do I think of Tyron Woodley? I think Tyron Woodley, dude, here's what was so amazing about him. Did you not love how he came out the gate? People were like, oh, well, he was aggressive from the start. But right, that's not an accident. He was setting the tone right away, right away when the fight started. He got in his face, throwing big punches, staying in there, countering him, moving, doing all the things he needed to, to the point where Till was offensively, not shook exactly, but thinking and a little bit reserved as a consequence. What a veteran smart move that is. Yeah. Um, I really appreciated that from him. But for Darren Till... Like, he just lost. He even said it. The better guy won. He's just a better guy, at least today. Maybe in five years, that won't be the case anymore. But tonight, or at least on Saturday night, it was. So my point being is, I'm not going to sit here and argue that 185 is not a better weight class for him ultimately. But if he can still make this weight in the same way, I, I don't necessarily see a need to change competitively. Maybe for health reasons, but not competitively. That's my only argument. Yeah, I don't know. It's just with the whole thing of him going blind and just looking at him very already drained ten, ten days out. Like, I just don't want to see him at, at one eighty five. And even in the buildup, I mean, he's getting yeah one seventy. My bad. Even in the buildup, he was getting ready for a title fight, and there was tons of talk of him going like openly saying he was going to go up to one eighty five. And that to me is a red flag. So, yeah. um, I think he wants that 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 shot again at Woodley because I feel like he's not happy at all with this performance. And he even told him him like you know to his face, he's like, "Yo, I, I want that second shot." But man, I think 185 is this it's his move. And, and the other part that's interesting to me is like he talked to people like Cyborg when they were trying to make was she making 140, right? Yeah. And if you talk to her trainers back then, they would say the amount of road work she had to do to get it, like there's just the amount of just I'm just working out just to keep my weight down. Right. Like it has no functional value. For the fight itself, it's just for weight management. It was an absurd amount of road work. Yeah. So you can cut that out. And how much fresher would he be, right? Yeah, and knowing that stunts your growth as a fighter because if you know you only got twenty four hours in a day, and if you're allocating all that into cutting weight rather than working on technique, you yeah. know, adding new tools to your arsenal, so it definitely can stunt your growth. Fair enough. Cool. So now let's move on uh, to let's keep talking about Till. Actually, hey, it's Rudy Rue. I'm calling from South Oklahoma. And my question is, if Teal does move up to 85, after suffering that loss from Woodley at 228, who should he face and why? So let's say Till decides to go up to 185. How would you match him up? Boy, that's a great one. So let's look at the rankings right now. This is always kind of helpful. However you want to assess how good they are, let's look at middleweight. So I would say outside the top 10, right? Because you need some kind of introduction. You've got Shoeface at 11, Tiago Santos at 12. Uriah Hall at 13, Elias Theodoru at 14, Christoph Jotko at 15. I think somewhere in that Tiago Santos, Uriah Hall, shoe face, somewhere 11 to 13 to me would be a great one. Maybe if you want to go outside of that just for, you know, um, purposes yeah. of making them earn their keep, you could. But I think that would, you know, I mean, you're going to tell me a fight against shoe face wouldn't be interesting. Uh, or a t- fight with Uriah Hall. Uriah Hall. That'd be fun. Tiago Santos isn't a bruising yeah. marauder. All, all of those would be yeah. good. So that's kind of, to, to me, giving him a shot in the top 10, not saying he couldn't beat those guys. It's not an issue of, oh, I don't think he can beat them. It's not that. It's that, mm-hmm. you know, you got to work your way up a little bit. Yeah. So that's that's a nice way, I think, to start. I think so. I, I think I would love a fight with Uriah Hall. I think that'd be super exciting. And down the line, imagine Adesanya versus Till. Oh my God, it'd be fantastic. Yeah, where's Adesanya? He's sitting at nine. Yeah, and even Brad Tavares. You know, I just wouldn't feel comfortable giving him a Brad Tavares fight. Maybe he wins. Maybe he blows the doors off Brad Tavares. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just don't. You agree with me that eleven to fifteen slot? That's really 
Yeah. That's really where it should be. Because he was a title contender, one division down. That does mean something, but not enough to just jump the queue on guys like Shoeface. Bro, Shoeface has been in there grinding. You know what I mean? So. And, and on top of that, I mean, regardless of the loss, Till still a very valuable asset to the UFC. He's young and he's got a huge fan base. So, you know, you don't want to do what they did with Francis Ngannou, you know, and, and match him up with someone as tough as Derek Lewis. You know what I'm saying? You you got you want to build him up. You want to give him a little bit of confidence. So don't, don't put him in the top 10, at least not. Very quickly, though, that gets back to my weigh-in argument. People are going to say, oh, well, they rushed these guys. Look, some of them have been rushed. Yes, some of them have been rushed. Wait, wait, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you right there. Because the next question is exactly Okay, about that. fair enough. So, you got it. Go ahead. Yeah. All right. So how do you know a prospect is ready? Great question. Hi, Luke. My name is Chinmay, and I'm calling from Mumbai, India. Big fan of all your content and the show. So thank you for that. So my question is, at what point do you know a prospect is ready to go to the next stage? Specifically in the context of three people, Francis Ngannou, Darren Till, and Zabit, who's now asking for a fight with either Aldo or Chad Mendes. Thanks. Boy, what a... Hey, oh. how important are my organization skills, man? <laughs> oh, yeah, they're really good. Uh, great minds think alike, too. But I got to say, these questions are phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenally good questions. Wow, very good. Like, I'm not even just saying that to be nice. No, really, yeah. these are really good questions. Um, and, and before we, we go on with the topic, yeah. that was uh, that was actually a, a voice recording. I could tell. I was, like, I was like, God damn this. The MMA Hour at VoxMedia.com. So if you can't call our hotline because uh, you're international and you don't want to, you know, drop the money on an international calls, yeah. you can always send us an MP3 to, to that email. I was like, my man's calling from Vonage or something. He's got good. By the way, uh, fun fact, Danny Segura, I was born in India. Did you know that? I did not. Yes, I was born in New Delhi, India. Interesting. My sister was born in Beirut. My brother was born in Paris, and I was born in New Delhi, India. Mm. There you go. Uh, all right. So on to the question itself. How do you know a prospect is ready? There's a lot of things you're looking at, right? One of them is who are they beating? Sort of you can just sort of say um, what does a resume look like. The other one is are they looking different fight over fight? Can you see clear progression? Zabit to me is showing progression in some areas. Some areas I still think I'd like to see him clean things up a little bit, but at fight over fight, he's beating tough guys and looking good doing it. Um, you're looking for that. You're looking for how are they training? Are they with a good camp? There, there's just a few ingredients about who are they beating and how are they doing it, which I know sounds very, very imprecise and unhelpful, but consider someone like John Jones. Didn't know who they were, right? You bring him in, and he just not only beats Andre Guzman, but beats him kind of easily. Then you have him against Stefan Bonner. He's throwing spinning back elbows, and you say to yourself, my God, this guy's got no experience. He's doing this. He's learning off YouTube. There's something going on here. There's a ton of natural ability. He can already beat these guys basically blindfolded, you watch him progress fight over fight, and that that maturation, that skill development, all of it becomes just sort of blend together. So how do you know a prospect is ready? The truth is, you don't. You don't. You can argue that Nganu was rushed. Dude, Nganu was out there knocking people's blocks off. And and I didn't think that the, the Lewis fight was all that tough for him relative to guys he'd already fought. The question, and I made this point before, was I thought they let him go too long in the Stipe Miocic fight, which is a completely different scenario that's taking care of people and making sure they don't take too much of a beating, which is another sort of thing you can look at, like as a prospect taking a lot of damage or not, that's something else. Um, but I guess you're just trying to figure out how good are they and what are they showing you in an iterative sense, fight over fight. If they're beating better guys, but they're doing it the same way over time, you should have some pause. They're just taking guys down the whole time and you could say, well, Habib does that, but Habib does a lot more than that. I'm speaking more of sort of like a John Fitch type 
Um, it, might, it should give you a little bit of pause about their upside, but the reality is you just don't know. You want to see them have enough requisite experience. And by the way, Darren Till's got what? Almost 20 fights. People are like, they rushed him. Well, they rushed him relative to his age, but not so much his experience necessarily. And Francis Ngannou, they rushed him relative to his experience and not his age. Those were, or yeah, yes, uh, a little bit differently. Um, um, so, so anyway, you get the idea. Danny, what did I miss? I, I, I didn't give a very helpful answer, but it's a bit of an eye test. I would actually, this. something you missed, and I would actually argue that Darren Till was a bit rushed because part of, sure, you can give him a million fights, but part of it is also giving him different looks. I mean, if you look at his last two, fight, two, two fights, it was Steven Thompson and Donald Cerrone. Both strikers. You kind of want to get him against a decent wrestler, and then if he kills it there, then you go, okay, well, maybe against Woodley he could do well. But Woodley took him down, and he had no answer to that. Um, so you want to give them Didn't different Woodley looks. Knock him different. Down? Right, he did, but I mean, he couldn't get back up for for a while. I know oh, right, he's right, probably right. rocked yes, and all that, yes, but yes. those um, those elbows, in fairness to Derek yes, Till, were yes, they were quite yeah, they were quite rough. Um, but you want to give a prospect different looks. You want to see how he does against a jiu-jitsu guy, a wrestler, a striker, different types of strikers. And then you know you know how how good he really is. If you just give him the same opponent all the time, you know you're just getting one look. So this is a great point. You're right. Like uh, you you begin to see how good someone is. Look, eventually everyone in MMA gets hurt. Everyone in MMA finds somebody who's got something on them. Maybe not the entirety of the skill set, but something of an Achilles heel. And the point being is you have to give them all these iterative tasks so that, yeah, yes, they look in an iterative sense better than the last time, but that they're answering, answering for, excuse me, all these many variables that happen as well. I'm trying to think of like a good test in that. John Jones is one, obviously. He's sort of the one that stands out. Um, I would say Habib's a good version of that. Conor McGregor's a good version of that insofar as, and I made this point before, people early on in his matchmaking were saying, oh, they were giving him favorable matchups. Well, sort of, sort of. Here's my point about that. Early on, I think that they did. I mean, giving him Dennis Seavers and Diego Brandaus and whatnot, these were absolutely favorable to him. But the entire time, he was working on his overall game. And look, once you get to the point where you're fighting the Chad Mendezes of the world and you're fighting the Jose Aldos, unless you go on some terrible losing streak, you, you can't go back anymore. You have to fight the guys in that space. So my thought was, I thought the UFC handled it right. Give him just enough uh, room to breathe while he gets better on the rest of his skill set. You're going to say this is preferential treatment. Yeah, sometimes it's worth giving a guy prefer preferential treatment if they can reward that preference in the end, which I believe that he has tenfold. So by the time you have to fight the guys who are super elite and there's no going back, now you're ready. Now the rest of those portions of your game have been brought up to speed. Now you can do big things. And I really believed that that's what they had done with him. That's a really good version. Brandon Vera for a while was a bit that guy. When he beat Justin Eilers, that was impressive. And then they gave him Frank Mir and he... He ran through Frank Mir. Uh, Fabrice over Doom was a bit too much. And then, of course, the wheels came off the bus a little bit on that one. But there was a time where you saw that sort of iterative growth. That's a good version. Frankie Edgar got a nice iterative buildup. So you could see fight over fight. These bigger guys, these some different skill sets. Yeah. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We have Dean on the line. We did not get to all of our calls. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Dean. And then after that, we'll do all the rest of our interviews at the end of the show. We'll finish up on your calls and finish up on your tweets. I'm sorry about that. We had to rearrange the show last minute, but we're going to make sure we get everything done. Now, with that being said, joining us now is not only a UFC veteran himself. You can see him on Dana White's Looking for a Fight. And he was the coach who awarded Tyron Woodley his black belt on Saturday. He is my friend and yours. The one and only Dean Thomas is here. Hi, Dean. 
What's going on, man? How are you? You shaved just for me? I'm amazed. I shaved just for you, man. I, well, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I can't grow a beard. Mine is, is way too gray. I see you got a little gray popping through, too, but yes. mine is way too gray. Yeah, you know what? I just don't have any shame anymore. That's really the difference between you and me. I just don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I ain't there yet, homie. I ain't there yet. <laughs> all right. You still have a youthful smile. Thank you so much for joining us. First of all, let me say congratulations. Your impressions of how Saturday went, Darren Till being held to just two strikes, it couldn't have gone much better. Yeah, we're incredibly proud in the camp. I mean, Tyron executed perfectly. And that's the type of uh, uh, performance that we were expecting out of him. I mean, we train a lot and uh, and and – and we've always wanted that type of performance from Tyron. And I think he delivered it this time with, with perfect execution. And we're just so proud of him. I mean, he did everything we asked him to do. You know, one of the things about being 36 and still this athletic is that you get some of the veteran uh, understanding of the game. So talk to me about this. I saw him coming out and people were like, oh, he came out aggressive, which he did. But it seemed highly strategic to me. It looked to me like he wanted to offensively set the tone right away. He wanted to get right away, not in a Vanderlei Silva sense in Darren Till's face, but to let him know that the offense was going to be coming early and often. And I think it had an effect. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't think anybody expected that. I mean, this is what I'm saying. It's like we we prepared Tyron to do that in some other fights and it just didn't work out. But when you type we put that pressure on Darren, I don't think he expected that. You know, you expect Tyron to back up and wait and wait and wait. So we said we we really need to to get in his face and make Darren Till work. You know, he we knew he cut a lot of weight. We knew he wouldn't be able to work for five rounds the way Tyron was prepared to work for five rounds. So we said we need to get to him early, you know, start creating angles and not allow him to get that left hand off. So then that's exactly what Tyron did. He got in his face, took away the angle of the left hand, and everything worked out in our favor. Let's talk worst case scenario where Tyron still wins. What were you expecting from Darren Till? Um, where if he still wins, right, still wins, but like, but like, but like the worst case scenario inside of a world where uh, he still wins. You know, I was, you know, if if Tyron got hit with a couple of left hands, um, that would have been the worst case scenario. You know, he got hit with a couple of left hands and and still been able to like pull out a decision or something like that. Because I mean, Darren Till is a dangerous fighter. I mean, we were we were pretty pretty concerned about some of the assets that Darren Till possesses. Um, like but, what? But in no mind, in no mind that I ever think that Tyron couldn't, couldn't beat him based on, you know, the weight difference, the height difference or anything like that. It was just a matter of being able to execute. I mean, Tyron's a short guy. He, he was at a, a disadvantage when it comes to height, but we knew that Tyron possessed the speed to be able to get inside fast. And like I told you the other day, being shorter can help sometimes because you take away some of your target. So with Tyron's foot speed and being shorter, he, t- he was able to take away that target, and Darren Till was never able to get that left hand off. You know, it was interesting, though. The one time where the height disadvantage really showed itself was when those outside trips were being attempted. It looked like a kid trying to climb a jungle gym. I mean, Darren Till looked yeah, huge yeah. in that regard. Yeah, and, you know, and that was another thing, too. But I, the one thing that people don't realize is Tyron does have long arms, so Darren Till wasn't able to get his hips fully away from Tyron because Tyron has long arms. So he was able to get his grips behind Darren, but he just wasn't able to get his grips and create the angle that he needed to get those trips off. So um, and Darren Till did the right thing. He, I mean, he's he's not a dumb fighter. He's not a 
he's not a, a you know a scrub, so he knows exactly what he needed to do. Let's talk about uh, after Saturday. It looks to me like the world is finally starting to come around on Tyron Woodley. Have you noticed that even some of his begrudging detractors are saying, you know what, maybe this guy is better than I thought? Yeah, and I think that people are starting to realize. I think that everybody – here's what I think, Luke. I'm going to be honest with you. I think that people were just upset with Tyron. You know, I don't think that they ever, you know, didn't think he couldn't – didn't think he could fight. I think they were just upset with him because they know what he's capable of. I mean, up until the second uh, Stephen Wonderboy Thompson fight, Tyron was just tearing people up up until that fight. Then those two fights, I think he just disappointed people. And they were upset with him. And that's when they started, you know, really bad-mouthing him. And the fact that he was coming out and just kind of complaining about his position in the game, I think that really just kind of exacerbated everybody's, uh, you know, view of him. And said, you know what, we don't like this guy. But I think... His performance on Saturday and his stance now that, listen, I don't care who you put in front of me. I'm just going to fight. I think that's what people want from Tyron, and I think that's what turned everybody's opinion of him around. Yeah, so it wasn't just the performance, right? It was afterwards at the post-fight press conference. They're like, who do you want next? He was really agreeable. He was like basically anybody. It might even be at UFC 230 because he didn't take any punishment. And, you know, every time I call somebody out, people don't like it. I don't blame him for doing that, but I think that's a pretty sober assessment of reality did did the criticism ever get to him, or how how did it how did it affect him? Low these many years. I mean, it's always affected him. You know, there's times where, you know, we have to take his phone away from him. You know, it it affects these guys. These fighters, everybody thinks that they're just you know these 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 warriors and these animals, but fighters are some of the most sensitive people that you'll ever see or ever meet. And it affects them. I mean, they get out there and they train their, their tails off and then they get in the cage and they fight. They make themselves so vulnerable for the world to see. And then people just take that for granted and start talking trash about them. And it affects them. It affects them heavily. But I think now is the time where Tyron, is, as his maturity, as he's evolving as a person and a, mixed, and a martial artist, he's starting to become more mature and say, you know what? There, this may be a time where I have to just you know, give to the fans what they want. And that's for me to just shut up and fight. Hmm. You know, it was interesting in researching this interview. I went back and I watched this fight at UFC 161 against Jake Shields. It was a very, very close fight. It went Shields' way via split decision, but probably could have gone either way. I scored it a draw. Apparently, I looked it up on MMA decisions. Shouts to them. In any event, um, he had a totally different corner. I think it was Laborio and some other striking coach. When did you get involved with him? Well, here's the thing. is like not a lot of people know this, but I've been involved with Tyron since 2006. I cornered him in his last two amateur fights. And then I but I didn't become a, a staple in his camp until he fought um it was one of his strike force fights. I can't remember exactly which one, but it was in strike force. But I missed a couple of his UFC fights and the fight with Jake Shields happened to be one of them. But um I was still always kind of in his corner and and we trained a lot together, but it wasn't until he started really making money to really provide for me to come out and be his, you know, his main guy. You know, he just couldn't afford to have me out for all those fights. So when did he start to have the ability to afford to, you, you to come out? I know you guys, correct me if I'm wrong, did you guys not have a podcast called D's Nuts? <laughs> yeah, we, we, <laughs> we still do. Okay. And, and, and the story about, and, and here's the thing, we have stickers for that, and Tyron put a sticker on Matt Sarah's back, and he wore it for the entire day. He didn't even know it was on his back. But yeah, we still kind of have that podcast, but we don't really, really exercise it that much. But to answer your question, Luke, we um, 
it wasn't until like the Rory fight is when I think, you know, I was with him for the whole camp of the Rory fight. And then after that fight, it was kind of like understood that I needed to be with him because, you know, he just a lot of times he just needs to stay focused. And I'm one of the only human beings on earth who could probably keep him as focused as he'll be. You know, he did look focused. You mentioned that these guys are sensitive. I don't think that's exclusive to Tyron. It's a lot of fighters who are that way. And he did look a little bothered by the fact that he was the underdog, but the right kind of bothered, where it was the kind of bothered that enabled him to dial in for this fight. I just felt like um, it's not good necessarily, Dean, to be bothered, but he seems like a veteran at this point who knows how to channel all of that into productive performance. Yeah, and that's what it was, too. He was bothered by it, but it wasn't that he was the underdog. That was never the case because he's been the underdog in the last four of his five fights, so that wasn't the case. The case was really that he knew that, you know, he felt kind of pressured into taking this fight. He knew that it wasn't really the right time for him, and it might not even have been the right fight for him, but he felt like he was kind of pressured into this fight. So he said, you know what? I'm going to keep my mouth shut, and I'm going to show the world what I'm made of. And that's exactly what he did. That was exactly the way he prepared for it. And he also, too, and this is one thing that I, I think helped this fight, too, was that he understood what Darren Till was capable of and respected it throughout camp. You know, some of the other guys, you know, were like Damian Maya or even Wonderboy. It was like we knew that we had that puzzle to solve, but he never really felt like those guys could hurt him and put him away and embarrass him. But he knew that Darren Till, if Darren Till was able to get off, he knew that Darren Till could embarrass him. So he said, you know what? I'm not going to let this happen. I can't afford to lose the position I'm in now, the position of that the world treats me the way the UFC and everybody treats me. I cannot lose this fight. If I lose this fight, I was saying, like, if Tyron loses that fight, he might as well retire. So he, he was in a do or die position. Why would he retire if he if lost Tyron the fight? Loses that They're going to push him way to the back. He's never, if Tyron loses that fight, they would have never given him a rematch. They would have never, he would have had to fight every top guy coming up. He would have, it would have, his next fight would have been Usman and then Leon Edwards and then Santiago Ponzinibbio. He would have never been in a position to get back to that title. So he cannot lose. Hmm. Uh, you are a black belt in jiu-jitsu under who? Who gave you your black belt? Ricardo Laborio gave me my black belt in 2007. 2007. Did you get it in the gi? Yeah. Okay. I trained. A lot of people don't know this about me, but... You know, when I had my own, I had my own, ran my own academy for 12 years, a couple, multiple ones, and I only did a gi program. Um, I, I did not know that you actually had a school. I, I knew you had your school. I didn't know it was for 12 years. Why did you, uh, very quickly, why did you decide to get out of that business? Well, just because, you know, I had the opportunity after the t ultimate fighter, uh, Black Zillions versus American Top Team, American Top Team wanted to hire me on full time as a coach. And I figured it was, uh, you know, I liked working with pros anyway. And and I just said, you know what, I'm just going to coach full time. And I just gave up my schools and just decided to coach full time. All right. So you got your black belt under Laborio in 2007. Uh, you, obviously, you have a bunch of famous wins via submission in the UFC. Uh, let's just start with the basic question. Why did you decide to award Tyron Woodley his black belt on Saturday? So, and uh, here's another thing, too, is a lot of people don't realize that Tyron trains in the gi as well. I did not and know even that. if he did yeah, even if he didn't, he's still his grappling is still up there with the best of them. In fact, I, I told him the other day, you know, I do all the drilling with the guys. And prior to this camp with Tyron, the most vicious guy that I drill with is Antonio Carlos Jr., who's a world champion in jiu-jitsu. 
Tyron felt worse than him as far as traditionally or transitionally and his pressure and just his ability for control and, and finding submissions. He felt worse than Antonio Carlos Jr. Now, his jujitsu ability is, is it exceeds the black belt level. The reason why I gave it to him was because he was supposed to get it a couple of years ago from Ricardo Laborio. But for whatever reason, it never happened. And I figured it, it would be a good experience for him to actually get this if he wins on Saturday night. So I said, you know what? I'm going to give him his belt if he wins. I knew he was going to submit him. I had no doubt in my mind that he wouldn't submit Darren. So that wasn't the submission I thought he would use, but I knew he would submit him. All right, a couple of questions. What submission did you think he was going to use? I thought he was going to uh, get him in a rear naked choke. Okay. So, so take him down, make him force him to turtle, and then go from there? Something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. And you don't and, – and in MMA these days, you don't force guys to turtle. They give it to you. You know, most guys just don't know how to capitalize off of it. But this is something that we work a lot on, and that's our sequencing to chokes from that back position. And I figured all he needs to do is give him the angle. And if he got the angle tiring, would have choked him out. Is the is the Dar something he typically goes to? Yeah, he likes the Dar. I mean, and that's one thing that you know, as a wrestler, you know, he he's traditionally a wrestler. They have that squeeze. You know, they know how to just bring it in. So um, I knew when given the opportunity, he was going to have the squeeze for that. So that's one of his moves. Just personally, one of his moves. That's really interesting, though. So you would have given him the black belt. Let's say he that remember that right hand that dropped, Darren. What if that had like one punch KO'd him? You still would have given him the black belt. Yeah, I would have given it to him because, like I said, and a lot of people are like, well, he just submitted. He submitted a white belt. Who? I mean, it's not. It wasn't that victory that secured it. That was just the moment that I wanted to give it to him. So whether he won or not, I would have given him the belt anyway. I see. What did he say to you backstage? If you don't, I mean, I don't know if you can share the details. Maybe you can just paraphrase. But did he give you any kind of indication? He was saying, I think he told Megan O'Leary he cared more about that than he did the UFC belt. Um, I'm wondering what you think it means to him. I know it meant a lot to him because I know how much he wanted to be to be a black belt. I mean, Tyron is a traditional martial artist through and through. I mean, he really likes he really loves doing jujitsu. I mean, and I know how much it means to him to want to be a black belt. And I don't think that he was one expecting it. Then and he and I don't even know if he knew how he would get it at this point, you know, because he's fighting, he doesn't really have a chance to like put the gi on maybe as often as he likes to. And I know in the jujitsu community, that's kind of like the thing that everybody looks for you have to put the gi on, so he doesn't really get those opportunities as much. But in the most opportunities he gets to train and grappling is with me, hmm. you know. Have so you I'm a third degree black belt, so I'm, I'm I think he deserved it and he earned it. Yeah, I, I have no doubt that he does. I mean, look, you get these guys who are D1 wrestlers. Forget very good D1 wrestlers like Tyron Woodley. And you know as well as I do, two years of jiu-jitsu on the mat, and they're at a minimum purple belt level. And he said he's been training yeah. jiu-jitsu since, what, 2005 or six. I have zero yeah. doubt that he's a black belt. I, I just sort of wonder, have you ever awarded a black belt, A, to anybody else, and B, in the context of, I know it wasn't because of the MMA fight. The MMA fight was merely the occasion but like that, not versus on the mats in front of everybody at jujitsu class. So I have four black belts that I've awarded. Um, two of them you wouldn't know. They just are, you know, they were my students from for a long time. Um, and the only other black belt I've ever awarded was Daniel Weichel from yes. Bellator. Yeah. Yeah. You, you gave him his black belt. I did not know that. I did, yeah. And did you give it to him an MMA fight or on the mats? I gave it to him on the mats. Okay, so this is a bit of a unique thing for you then. 
Yeah. Yeah, this is the first time I've ever done this. Wow, crazy. Let me ask you a few more questions about Tyron, if I can. Look, I, I said this at the outset of the show. I don't know why Dana White was not at the post-fight press conference, and I, I, I hesitate to speculate, um, but here's what my point was. If, if he wasn't there uh, because he had some kind of other situation he had to attend to, well, that's a shame, but I could understand. If not, it's just shameful to me because you get these big wins like this, and that's the right moment for the head of any organization to come out and pat a guy on the back and tell the world, set the narrative for this. What do you make of Dana White not being there? You know, being on the show with Dana, I know how hard he works. I know his schedule, and I know he keeps everything really tight. So I will never speculate that he didn't show up because he disliked Tyron or didn't want Tyron to win. In fact, when he came into the cage, he kind of gave me a nod and was like, good job. Um I mean, I, I, of course, everybody's going to speculate that he didn't like it. But I know, like I said, Dana keeps a very tight schedule. I know that he was leaving. I was talking to a security guy afterwards saying, man, we got a flight to catch. And, you know, and sometimes Dana's just like his schedule keep, is tired all the time. So, like, you know, I don't want to use that as the excuse, but I just know he keeps a tight schedule. So, like, that's the only reason why I could say he, did, he wouldn't be at the press conference. I would like to see him come out with a statement now and congratulate Tyron. That would be good, you know, because – it's easy. It's easy to criticize fighters, but you know when when they show and prove, when they show up and give you what you ask, it's you know I think you it's only right to give them their props. Uh, Tyron Woodley's just an amazing guy, right? Like he's maybe the best analyst on Fox. He's one of the best welterweights of all time. A jiu-jitsu black belt, a family guy. He has a show on TMZ. He pays for his own self promotion. He never gets in trouble. I, I don't know if this is the corner that he needed to turn to get promotion. But geez, Dean, if this is not, I, I have a hard time understanding what might be. Listen, and don't forget about his mix, his, his mixtape he got coming out and the single <laughs> he got dropped with Khalifa. This You're week. right. So if this isn't the right, I mean, he does movies. I mean, he's one of the most unique guys I've ever met. And like his energy, if people really knew him, everybody would like him because he's so charismatic and charming. But, you know, the problem is, man, it's just hard to get past some of you know, some of what he does at times, you know, he when he starts to talk, you know, because like he just he wants everybody to get on his side and see what he's doing. And it may come out wrong at times. I think that's what it is. We were talking at the top of the show about where he ranks all time among welterweights. You and I spoke about this on Friday. My sense now and looking at the resumes is Matt Hughes has more title defenses and certainly did a lot for mixed martial arts. But I'm I, it's just hard to say because t uh, Tyron doesn't have as many title defenses but the ones he has are over fighters who are, for the most part, way better. So after Saturday, where would you rank him? Second or third or something like that? And what do you think he has to do to get into an argument about being the best welterweight of all time? I think, you know, at this point, I, I'm going to have to say second. Um, I think that if he beats, and like you said, I think his resume speaks for itself. When you think of the guys that he has beaten, you know, even 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 in his come up between like Carlos Condit, Kelvin Gastelum, Robbie Lawler. So like all he's beaten all those guys. But I think that a couple of more title defenses will solidify his position. I think that's all he needs. You know, a win over Colby does. I mean, to me, I think Colby's an easy opponent, to be honest with you. But just on the resume, he kind of needs that just so he can have more title defenses. But and maybe even Usman. But if he gets those two, then he's the best of all time. Why is Colby an easy fight in your judgment? Just because Colby is, he doesn't have, well, first off, he, he doesn't have anything that's dangerous. 
to Tyron. You know, he doesn't have the ability to knock him out with one punch if Tyron slips. He doesn't have the ability to to choke Tyron out, like to put, take him down, take his back and choke him out. I don't think he has that ability. The, the way Kobe can win that fight is to obviously grind him out. And I don't think he can out-wrestle Tyron to get him to that point. So to me, that's his kind of an easier matchup. Is that the one you want to see next? And do you think November 3rd, if they make it UFC 230, is that too soon or just you know, strike while the iron's hot? November 3rd, uh, I don't think it's too soon. You know, Tyron didn't take any damage. He's healthy. He's mentally in the right place. I don't think it's too soon. If 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 Tyron can do it, as long as it don't interfere with his rap tour schedule, I think it is. <laughs> I think it works. Uh, how how would you rate Tyron as a rapper? G- grade those bars. So uh, here's another thing with Tyron. Um, he is incredibly intelligent, and he's a student of the rap game. So he's when he raps, like he he really he, he puts a lot of effort into his lyrics. He's still working on his delivery a little bit, but I mean that's coming with practice. And he can tell you that as he get, as he practices and he's in the zone, you know his his delivery is fresh. But his his lyrics are up there. His, his lyrics are tight. I saw him on Sway freestyling. I don't know if it was a freestyle, but it was pretty good. It was pretty good in the end. Yeah. And that was and that was kind of, you know, he's gotten he's gotten a lot better since then, to be honest with you. Like he he created 30 songs in a year. Wow. And he's always in the studio. He's like, that's his release. Like he he likes to just go to the studio and rap. You gotta be like DJ Clue on his records where you'd be like, oh no, stop, 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 stop. You gotta be that guy yeah, on know, the record. Somehow, somehow I gotta get in there and be in the background. I don't know how, but somehow I gotta do it. Well, you know what? It seems like you guys have an incredible relationship. It was a near flawless victory on Saturday. Dean, you're one of the good guys in the sport. I really appreciate your time today, and I can't say it enough. Congratulations to Tyron and to you as well. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. All right. From one nice person to another, uh, I believe this is the first time outside of her Instagram post that she has spoken about this. Let's go to her now. I hate to say this, but she is the former... Uh, women's flyweight champion of the world, the one and only Nico Montano joins us here on the show. Hi, Nico. Hi, Luke. How are you? I'm doing well, Nico. It's nice to see you. I guess I'll start by saying, number one, thank you for making time for us. Uh, number two, let's just sort of talk about your health. How are you today? I'm good. You know, the doc said to take a couple of days off um, and get back into it. Um but he definitely emphasized on, you know, your heart or your kidneys weren't failing. They had already gone. So he said to make sure that I just ease back into it. All right. So you're back at home now, yes? Yeah, in Albuquerque. Okay, back in Albuquerque. All right. So let's um let's let's back up a few steps here, if we can. All right, first things first. You felt fine all the way up until when? Thursday night, really Friday morning, because I had been cutting. So the last thing I had to do Thursday was a little media thing with the corner. Well, not the cornerman, but the people who were the commentators. So that was like 3.30. And then right after that, I was like, okay, let's get on this weight cut. So around 4 is when we started. And then that night, or I should say the next morning, 1 a.m. is when we took a break because it was like, pretty hard to get any more sweat going and so we took a break at one started to get going again at five and then by like 
6.30. This is where I lose track of time because it was just going downhill. Um, but after that, after that is when I just started feeling immense pain. And, you know, I've, I've been through pretty tough weight cuts before and I've always made weight about it. But this one just wasn't anything comparable. Yeah. So just for records keeping sake, you've never, you've up until Saturday, excuse me, Friday, you had previously never missed weight, correct? Exactly. All right. So things went downhill and what, how did they go downhill to the point where you got taken to the hospital? Um, I turned, like it turned back quick, you know, at like at five, I had put my suit on and my sweats on and some sweet sweat. And I was like, you know, we're making 125. It's ridiculous. Like this has never happened. And I was so motivated to do it. So I went for like a 15 minute run, you know, did what I could. And then like, okay, I got a little, a little sweat going, which was pretty tough. So I was like, let's get this, keep this going. And then we hopped in the, the sauna and then my back was just like, it just felt like sheer, like stabbing pain. And then my stomach kept cramping, but it was, it was definitely like the heat that set it off. You know, that little jog was kind of, I mean, it was hard, but it, it was, I was able to do it. But then I got into the heat and it was my kidneys, my back, my, my lower back and my stomach were just in pain. And, uh, we got out and I was about to try and cocoon, but then I started dry heaving and <laughs> I was like dry heaving all over the floor right there. And there was, um, some folks that were staying in the hotel and they were just like some, or, you know, some regular folks never heard of the sport UFC at all walking by telling us like, I'm calling the cops. You guys are being ridiculous to like my boyfriend who was helping me cut weight and the guy who was running the documentary. Um, cause they just had no idea, you know, they're like, what is happening? And they're like, no, we're, we're fine. We're just trying to make weight. And they're like, this is ridiculous. We're calling the cops. We're calling the security. We let the front de- front desk know. So at that point, we kind of just had to mosey on back to my uh, my room, which was an effort in itself. <laughs> um, and then as soon as we got back, that's when um, one of the UFC people were like, you know, I'm worried about your kidneys, so let's go ahead and take your vitals and let's see what's happening. And And then the stretcher came in from there. Again, I think that was from... Oh, did we lose her? But they were there, and then they loaded me up on the stretcher. And all right, so we lost. We lost. Yeah, we. Yeah, you're good. You're good. You're good. You're good. We lost you for just a second. So you said the people came in, they took your vitals, they put you on a stretcher, and from there they took you to the hospital. Did I get that right? Absolutely. Yeah, got that. Okay. So you get to the hospital, and I'm assuming they they treated you. What were the doctors telling you at the hospital? They're saying that my kidneys had shut down. and like I said, they weren't like, they weren't like your kidneys almost shut down. They're like your kidneys shut down and your sodium levels are way too high. And when you have an out an imbalance in electrolytes like that, I forget what the term is called and it's not necessarily cardiac arrest, but it could lead to like heart muscle tissue damage, what could ultimately lead to death. And so they're like in, ter- in a situation like this, like they're like, who knows, you could have probably weighed in, but who knows, like if you would have waited 30 or 30 minutes or an hour longer than, I mean, it was 50, 50 at that point. Uh, how long before, how long before you started feeling better? Um, it took a while. It took me a couple IVs. My back is still hurting. Like it, I was trying to carry the back, my backpack through the airport security yesterday. And it's just like, my back is still pretty tender. Um, but it just took a couple, a couple of bags of saline and um, making sure my sodium levels were back 
at it. So I drink a bunch of orange juice because that's they're saying that that's good electrolytes without a lot of sodium. By I don't know. By ceremonial weigh-ins, I'd say is when they let me out, and I was good. I was released from there. Um, at, at any point, um, were you speaking with any UFC representatives while you were in the hospital, or was anyone in your team speaking with any UFC representatives? I think there was a, my coaches talking to a couple of people. Um, I wasn't obviously. I just shut my phone off um, starting the night before because during a cut, I just don't want to talk to anybody anyway. So they were talking to some UFC people. Um, one of uh, one of the UFC PI people were helping me out through the cut and came over and just was making sure I was okay. Uh, my boyfriend had talked to that wasn't anything with the UFC. That was just a journalist. But uh, yeah. Um, okay, there's a lot, a lot to unpack here. Uh, was someone from the UFC helping you with your cut? The UFC PI. They were they were basically in charge because here's what I'm trying to I'm trying to get at. If I had to ask you why the cut failed, given that it never failed before, to what extent is it something you could have done? To what extent did you think you got bad advice? No, I think it was just the amount of time. You know, I came in a little heavy because I was trying to race the clock to be on weight for this fight. Um, and I knew that from the beginning. I knew I was going to have to sacrifice a lot of my performances in the gym during camp leading up to it because it was just about making weight. This whole camp was just about making weight. So when you say it was um, so much of the camp was about making weight, are you su you're suggesting that this fight shouldn't have been in September. It should have been, I don't know, October, November, something like that? Absolutely. Yeah. And we've, I tried to ask for it, we tried to push for it, but if the threat of getting a, my belt stripped was, you know, was that, you know, if, you, if I didn't pick September, there was a threat of getting my belt stripped. So why just give up then? So I, they told, you know, I tried to push. So they told you, if you don't take the fight in September, we, we, we might take your title away. Essentially, you know, not in such bold wording, but yeah. Okay. And so you accepted the fight. And then again, as you mentioned, you came in, you came in, um, by the time you started your cut, how heavy were you? Um, I came in on Tuesday at 144. Oof. That is, that is, uh, how, how much are you usually that time for a fight? I was 141 last time. That was okay. a little heavy to, again, coming off of the tough show and pretty tough cut. Um, you know, it's all just kind of my biology at this point. It's kind of hard to guarantee anything until I know my body's cooperating and not rebelling. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the context here. And then I want to get into the title being taken away in just a minute, but you had noted in your post on Instagram that you believe that there's been a metabolic effect, not only with you, but with other fighters who have competed on the ultimate fighter. We know after the ultimate fighter, you had the tonsillitis, you had the broken foot, you had a number of immune system problems. It sounds like you believe that that's, that you're not over that. Um, yeah, you know, I think it took a while for it to, to get a kickstart. Um, Hopefully I'm okay now, you know, these past couple of weeks I've been, um, feeling like, like an athlete. Um, and, but it just happened to be these couple of last weeks that everything started to get going to where I could like get, make some educated guesses on where my weight was going to be and how I was going to feel that day. Up until then it was kind of just like, I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. 
this might sound like a, a indelicate question. I don't mean it that way, but given what has happened to you biologically since that time on the show, including the removal now of your title, how do you look back on your time on the ultimate fighter? It was good. You know, it, um, it was great in the sense of getting to get my name out there, obviously get my story out there. Um, and just getting to know the girls on the show, you know, I can take, I can look at it from either perspective. Obviously I'm going through a little bit of a chronic, um, wave of just bad, <laughs> bad luck right now in terms of health. Um, I think the show was the catalyst for sure with all of this. Um, but like I said, hopefully now I'm, I'm back to, I'm back to it. You know, I was asked then I was asked right after I got out of the show, if I would do it again. And I said, no. <laughs> and that's just my honest opinion. I had fun for sure doing it. I don't technically regret it, but I wouldn't do it again. Hmm. All right. Let's talk about the title now. Um, how did you find out you had had the title taken away? Instagram. <laughs> Tell me scrolling about it. through Instagram. Um, I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw an interview with Dana White saying the title has been stripped. And I was getting out of the hospital and I was like, alrighty then. So and your, and your reaction kind of, did you did you believe it? Were you in shock? Like Yeah, yes and no. I mean, like I said from the get-go, it's kind of understandable that they want to get things rolling, you know, it's just sad that they have to do it on behalf of my health. Um, and I suppose I could have said no to the fight in September and had been stripped then anyway, but I still would have looked like I was scared or something, you know, and I already had a bunch of people on the internet being crazy. Um, so I just wanted to show people that I was making an effort and being proactive about taking up this fight. Um, knowing that it was still going to just be like up in the air about making weight. And that was going to be the biggest issue. But yeah, it was, it was definitely pretty sad. It was disheartening. I didn't want to have anything to do with the UFC for a bit after that. You know, my short temper was self was like, F this, you know, you just almost died for a company that doesn't even call you to make sure you're alive. <laughs> so it was kind of like, personally, it was kind of just like, well, screw you. On a business level, you know, if I can see it from a different perspective, I can see what they they have to do or they feel like they have to do. But just the inconsistencies with a bunch with a bunch of things like this is uh is still pretty disheartening in terms of do, you know what's going to happen with my career. Am I going to want to stay in the UFC? I'm going to want to stay in the UFC just to fight Valentina <laughs> eventually. Mm. But I mean, with anything else, it's just like, what else is the motivation? What else is the motivator? Have you have you personally spoken to any uh, management inside the UFC, upper level management? Um, I texted Dana, and then he wrote me back on Instagram. I texted Dana right after I got out of the hospital, and then he texted me back on Instagram last night. and said to call him today. Um, there's been a couple of people reaching out. You know, like a lot of, a lot of the tough producers. Um, I get that the UFC is just this huge system, and there's a lot of intricacies in that. You know, I'm not trying to get anybody like on on bad terms or anything everybody's so nice to get this whole thing developed and all these fight cards going so there's not like any personal vendetta with any anyone personally so i i just 
and pretty angry and upset with the UFC as a whole, or I don't even know who to be upset with, but you know, those words or those letters are, are definitely upsetting these days. Um, you, you mentioned Valentina Shevchenko would be a remaining source of uh, competitive fuel for you. I know you've seen this, but I wanted to read you in for the audience's sake, a small portion of a statement that she had uh, put out saying, quote, the following, I had asked for a fight in October knowing this and had some legit people on the side also asking on my behalf. However, the matchmaker and whoever else only gave me the September date. Sorry, this is you. One second. Uh, I want to read this out here. Um, so with no other choice, with the internet taking a lying bully, Valentina, I was forced to accept the date and have the threat to get stripped away. You have called her a lying bully. You've also called her, I believe, quote, an egomaniac and said the things she has said are completely false and nowhere near the truth. Specifically, what has she said that is not true? The, that she's been training three times for me, and I've backed out three times. Um, this is the only fight that I've ever signed a contract for. There was the talk of the July card, but I turned that down ASAP because I was, as soon as I heard of that opportunity, I was just coming out of uh, my tonsillectomy. Like I still couldn't work out hard because it was still like there's still sutures in my mouth. So, so that is completely false. I don't know where she's getting that. I don't know where she's coming up with. I backed out because I was scared um, during the week, during this past week. Um, you know, I did everything I could and this documentary is going to show it. What What do you make of some of the larger statements that she's made that she knew you were going to back out and... She had full, not full confidence exactly, but that she sort of saw this coming. You know, I think she lives in La La Land for a reason. I think she, I think she really wanted that to happen, you know, unless she's another Miss Cleo and she could have a side job because <laughs> she's good at that. Um, but I think she was hoping for it. You know, I think she's a little scared, excuse me, a little scared to fight somebody like me. Um, I think deep down she was actually really hoping for it hoping this fight wasn't going to happen so she could have more ammo to be a cyber bully and she wouldn't have to face me in the octagon. And let's now look to head to the future. You have noted that uh, your health is on the, on the mend, but there's been some chronic issues uh, low these many months. When you think about the rest of your 2018, what do you think it looks like? Um, right now, I'm going to be as proactive as possible. I uh, told the PI, I told people, I told everyone there that I'm going to be heading up there as soon as I'm ready, um, as soon as capable, and then we can get some tests going where I can be in terms of weight, you know, how my, how my body is going to be able to uh, manage itself and adapt itself properly to my used to be walking around weight, you know, 142. Um so, yeah, you know, just being proactive and showing my face there so that people know that this is uh, something I'd like to keep pursuing for absolutely with no uh, hesita hesitation. And, and you're going to speak, I think you said you were going to speak to Dana White later today? I hope so, you know. He, um, he asked me to call him, so I'll do that. And what, what is it you intend to say to him? I don't even know. You know, this is kind of my first rodeo in the UFC. This is like, welcome to the UFC. You have nothing to compare it to. So I'm not sure what even to ask or how even to just go about any more business questions, you know? I just want to know why 
I don't know. I don't even know what I want to know. You know, it's mm. not necessarily coming from them. You know, I, like I said, if I ask the question why I got stripped, I'm sure they're going to come up with a logical reason on their behalf, but on his behalf. But it just, uh, you know, as, as humans, I feel like we got to look out for each other and at least be nice. So hopefully it's a good conversation in that sense. So ultimately, when you look back on the stripping, you sort of seem like you're halfway there, like you understand a little bit about why they do it, but you, do you believe it's unfair? I do. I do believe it's unfair. I believe it's unfair that the way it has it was done, you know, with me finding out on Instagram, and also the way that their inconsistencies are. They made so many interim belts, but this one was just stripped due to health precautions. I mean, there's so many interim belts that were made due to precautions, due to injuries. And there's just no inconsistency. So what's there to rely on? Well, I know this has been a very difficult period, uh, Nico, for uh, many months, given all the different uh, health ailments and now this one being added to it. I know it's been a difficult time. Is there anything you wanted to say to the fans of MMA as we uh, part ways? No, you know, I think I threw everything out on Instagram. If you guys like to keep up with my story, um, definitely follow me on there and our Montano. But uh, to like my loyal fans, you know, I'm really, I'm really happy to see the support that's wrapping me up with this. Um, it really wasn't my intention to do that. So if a lot of people had to change their schedule around to meet this fighting date and it fell through, you know, I, like, I, I'm sorry that everyone, did that and it didn't happen, but I, you know, there's only so much I can do. I, I kind of don't want to even apologize because I, my kidneys shut down. Like this is my livelihood. Like I tried, I tried everything with everything stacked against me, not only the odds, but with the help that was being brought on by like the matchmaker, you know, it was just kind of a sabotaging move. Well, it's an unfortunate event, I think, to put it mildly, for uh, all the parties involved. I know this is a difficult period in your career, Nico, and it requires a degree of uh, strength to share your story. So I wish you nothing but uh, the best in terms of your, the rehabilitation of your health. And thank you for spending some time with us to uh, give us your perspective. Thank you, Lou. I appreciate it. Okay. Get rest. Uh, all right. Well, certainly interesting, but we are not done yet. We have many guests to go. Joining us now... Via the magic of Skype is, uh, I mean, what do you want to call this guy? Black belt in jiu-jitsu, wizard, uh, pioneer, innovator, and now one of the great promoters, frankly, uh, of uh, professional jiu-jitsu. You know him, you love him. The one and only Eddie Bravo joins the show. There he is. Thank you. Hi, Thank hey, you. Yeah, no problem, Eddie. How are you doing? Doing great. Can't complain. Life is good. Yeah, you've got so much going on. I noticed that you have the Combat Jiu-Jitsu Worlds shirt on. You've got uh, EBI, I think, 17 coming up. You've got Quintet coming up. You are quite the busy man. T Tony at the UFC. <laughs> yeah, even that too. How, uh, how, how, be, be real, Eddie. How many hours a night do you sleep? <sighs> you know what? <clears throat> there was a sleep expert on, on JRE a couple weeks ago, and he scared the shit out of me. He said, you, you got to get at least um, uh, nine hours of sleep. But... Uh, every night and I'm like shit no wonder I feel like shit all day because I, I get like six maybe seven 
I don't know how healthy that is, but I got to say, uh, jiu-jitsu looks like it's uh, never been healthier. You mentioned Tony Ferguson. I want to get to all the stuff you're doing in just a minute if I can. Uh, Tony, have you seen him training uh, through his rehabilitation, through his knee injury? How's he looking? He's looking great. He's done everything possible for his rehab. He's got the leg sleeves that uh, are like compression leg sleeves. He's doing the red light therapy. He's got his own gym and he has like all this recovery equipment and, and his work ethic is the craziest of all time. Like, I don't know anybody that could keep up with him. He he's, he's a savage and you know, it's no um, surprise to me that uh, when he fights in the octagon under those big bright lights and under all that pressure, he, he never breaks and his cardio has never been um, a problem ever. He's a machine. He really is. Now, did you give him his black belt? Yes, I did. Okay. Uh, we were talking about that earlier. Have you ever given a black belt to somebody? Not, not Dean. We had Dean Thomas on the show. As you know, he gave Tyron Woodley his black belt. Have you ever given it to somebody in the cage? As Dean was telling us, it wasn't that submission. He was going to give it to him anyway. But I'm wondering if you've ever done it that way. Um, yes. Uh, ben Eddy, uh, he was a brown belt when he fought black belt Nick Honestein. Um, at EBI, I forget, I get the numbers confused, but it was, uh, <clears throat> it was the EBI, uh, the last one, uh, 45 show, the one that John Callistein, uh, won, uh, we had a special combat jujitsu championship match, uh, between Ben Eddy and Nick Honstein. And, uh, I've been, um, you know, I was waiting for the right time to give Ben his black belt and, um, that was the perfect time, him beating Nick Honstein to for the belt. So he, he won the combat jiu-jitsu, the EBI combat jiu-jitsu um, bantamweight belt, and he got his black belt in jiu-jitsu as well. So, yes, I have done it before. Let's talk about some of the things that are happening inside. Uh, we're going to get to this quintet, which, of course, will be Friday, October 5th. You're a part of that. Also, EBI 17 middleweights, as I understand it. That's in all combat jiu-jitsu uh, event, but very quickly, I'm sure you saw Tyron Woodley's Darce joke over Darren Till from Saturday. Your assessment of his uh, submission? It was perfect. You know, um, <clears throat> Till Till probably didn't think he would go for a submission. I don't know if we have we've ever seen Woodley go for a submission in the UFC. Uh, if Joe is correct, that was his first submission because Joe talked about it. I don't remember him going for a submission, so. Till probably didn't think uh, he was actually going to sink it in. Um, <clears throat> but the guy is a high-level wrestler, and most high-level wrestlers, they usually have a high-level Darce in their game because it's basically a three-quarter Nelson, but you just turn it into a choke. So it didn't shock me at all. Hmm. All right, let's get to some of the things that I would love to pick your brain about. Now, you've got this thing, Quintet, October 5th. It'll be the day before uh, Habib versus McGregor, which I want to talk to you about as well. But it's going to work like this. It's Team Sakuraba, Team Polaris, Team 10th Planet, that's you, and then of Team Alpha Male. Josh Barnett's going to be a part of it as well. Your team, Gio Martinez, Richie Martinez. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce these names, so please, I, I apologize in advance, Eddie. Is it PJ Barch or Bark? Barch. And then Adam, Barch. yeah, Adam Sacknoff and then Amir Alan. Did I get those? 
Exactly. Amir Alam with an M. Alam. Yeah. I apologize. I knew I was going to botch one of those, Eddie. Eddie, talk to me about the state of professional jiu-jitsu. I mean, it, you got Fight to Win Pro out there. EBI is out there doing it. Now you've got Quintet. Like, you have been one of the guys at the forefront of professional jiu-jitsu for a long time. You competed in Meta Morris. It seems like the market is as good as it's ever been. Uh, yes, it's as good as it's ever been, but it, it certainly has um, <clears throat> a, a tremendous room a, a tremendous amount of room for growth because uh, it just, you know, financially, you know, all those shows that you mentioned, we're just like breaking even, you know what I mean? So mm. um, with there, there should, there should be uh, a, a bigger money fights. There should be, but at this point there isn't, but we're growing, you know, every, everybody that's involved right now in the promotion of these events is doing it as a passion project because ain't nobody making real, you know, significant money. Um, no jujitsu event has um, survived yet. I mean, you know, most like Meta Morris went down. <clears throat> EBI is still around, but, you know, we're basically just trying to survive. And, and, you know, so, yes, the sport is bigger than it's ever been. Uh, but there's a, there's a there's a long ways to go if we're all going to survive. So make the argument for me if you can, because some might say, well, part of the reason why jiu-jitsu, uh, professional jiu-jitsu is sort of fly-by-night is because at the end of the day, it wasn't designed to be a spectator sport. Maybe you can make it that way, but it's not so easy. To, to that, you would say what? That's perfect, man. That really is. Because all we've had before when it, when it comes to competitive jiu-jitsu is the points format. And the points format will will never look good on on TV. It it just won't. You know, people are trying still. It just ain't gonna happen. It never. It's you know, we've been doing points tournaments for a while, and you know, these style uh, events like jujitsu events, they're, they're nothing new. Uh, Hickson had a show called Bushido back in the day. Um, Rico Chiparelli had a show called Professional Submission League. Um, they all went down uh, because they were all points, a point based system. So the only hope we have, the only hope for jujitsu as a spectator sport, as a viable spectator sport, um, profitable, is the um, sub only format. And that's why Quintet um, is is blowing up right now is because it's a submission only format. The point points formats are like uh, like chess. You know, chess is a, you know, a prestigious game, um, but you'll never see it in a pay-per-view format on, you know, um, on cable. Right. Let me read these rules for folks who may not know what the difference is between Quintet and some other professional jiu-jitsu outfits. Namely, uh, Sakuraba named it himself. It's five on five, but it works this way. Two guys from each team start off competing on the mat with either one is eliminated by submission. You can only win by submission. The winner then stays to face the next member. So if you win, you just keep going through other guys, or after eight minutes, the time limit expires. Both guys are eliminated. The process plays out until five members of one team are eliminated, handing the victory to the other team. All five members of the winning team then all return for the finale match against the winner of the other semifinal fight. By the way, you could say, well, just have a heavyweight go against everybody, but the team must collectively weigh under all five, 943 pounds. So how do you strategize who goes first? Gio Martinez and Richie, two of your most celebrated students, but there's a big difference in size. How do you strategize around that? 
Well, the way we we did it in Quintet 2 is we put P.J. Barch first and um, Boogie second, Gio third, Amir fourth, and um, Adam Sacknoff, our biggest guy, last. You know, you could really just – you could just – there's – there's a bunch of different ways you could do it, obviously, but um, um, PJ, uh, he just he, he wrestled his whole life, and um, I felt that uh, his defense is incredible, and um, I, I just thought that putting PJ first would was is would be the smartest move. But I mean, we could put Geo first, you know, and Geo might take out a whole team. So it's really it's really hard to uh, say which order is best you know especially since you don't know the order of your the opposing teams like if you knew the order of their then you could really strategize and really put some more uh, mental effort into it but when you have no idea how your your opponent is going to line up their team it's really just guesswork now as i mentioned that'll be october 5th uh in the orleans arena in orleans casino in las vegas the day before habib versus connor i know on ebi 17 i think that's going to be september 29th right eddie at the muscle farm hq in burbank california live on fight pass as well now that that one the entire thing is combat jujitsu let me ask you is that going the way you thought it would when you introduced open palm strikes Absolutely. People love it. Um, combat jiu-jitsu was the format I was trying to uh, push before EBI. Uh, co- I've actually put uh, a couple combat jiu-jitsu matches together before EBI was even thought of. That, that's the format I really wanted. But because of the striking, you have to get the commission involved. With sub only, you don't. the commission has nothing to do with it. So you can just, you know, put on a show and you don't have to, you know, you don't have to uh, get approval from anybody, but since there is striking in combat jujitsu, the commission had to get involved. And back then, they didn't know what it was. Hold on, <laughs> they they didn't know what it was. So I wanted to do combat jujitsu on open mats, not in a cage. The commission wanted to have it in a cage. They, you know, basically said you had to have it in a cage. And I said, oh, okay. And I wanted one ten minute match. They said, no, we'll give you three two-minute matches. And I'm like, three, three two-minute rounds, sorry, three two-minute rounds. And I thought, you can't have a grappling match with two two minutes. So I, you know, we pushed it to three three-minute rounds. And that that even sucks. But we we accepted it. We tried a couple matches. We had a mix, mixed um, uh, results. So at that point, I thought, you know, let's just do sub only. So then EBI was born. We did sub only. We did about 10, 11 shows. Then at that point, I went back to the commission. I said, can I do combat jujitsu now on uh, open mats? And at that point, they were like all for it. So then combat jujitsu got approved. And then we started introducing it um, uh, a little in, you know, as special matches in EBI. And then people just love it. So then, you know, I did combat jujitsu worlds and we did two eight man brackets. And that went that that had, uh, you know, that has like half a million views on my YouTube, you know, and none, no EBI shows that I ever had on YouTube had, uh, you know, 500,000 views. So that um, people, you know, it, there's a lot of submission only shows now. There's a bunch. There's I would say 30 of them now, you know, so it, it just it just now is the right time 
to do EBI the way it was originally intended. And that's with combat jujitsu. And, you know, kill two birds with one stone. Do, you know, I'm going to do what I planned uh, to do initially at the beginning of all this. And it's time to step it up. You know, now that there's all these other submission only shows, and I love them all. There's so many of them out there. Finishers, Ultimate Mat Warriors. There's so many um, on an invitational. You know, now it's time, you know, to step it up and 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 do um combat jujitsu uh, whenever the, the the whenever we're gonna have a male combat uh or a male show um we're gonna do combat jujitsu when we have female shows we're gonna do uh we're gonna stick stick with submission only that's uh, that's where ebi is headed to now got it uh we're a little bit short on time so let me pick your brain on just a couple more topics very quickly as i mentioned the quintet will be the day before habib versus connor you're a ground wizard what are you expecting from habib and connor if it does go to the ground there's this conventional wisdom that habib is going to to run over him and maybe he does but i often thought that the guard work we saw from connor against nate diaz was actually short-lived but pretty good what are you anticipating in the event that it goes to the ground well everybody's guard so far uh, hasn't been good enough for Khabib. Uh, you look at uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, Edson Barbosa, uh, um, Michael Johnson, all these guys, nobody, nobody has the guard uh, to deal with Khabib. You know, especially since, you know, most, most of the guys that Khabib takes down, they're they're running on the ground, which means they're trying to get back up to the feet. They're trying they're trying to use the fence to drag themselves up. So they're basically running from the ground game. You know, um, no one's really stayed and faced Khabib head on on their back, and that's what Tony's going to do. Tony's not going to be one of those guys trying to drag himself up and trying to just you know, crawl their way, you know, spend the whole round trying to get back up while he's getting mauled. Tony's not going to do that. If he gets taken down, he's going to attack him. He's going to square up and attack him. So Khabib's got to worry about Tony's ground game because Tony has a lot of firepower. So um, does does Connor have the most powerful left hand ever, pound for pound? Probably, but that does not translate to guard work. So, um Odds are, if Tony, or if, Con- if Connor gets dragged to the ground, it's not going to be a good night for him. It's going to be a long night. Hmm. Well, it's going to be a great night, October fifth, when we get to see Quintet in Las Vegas. I will be there, Eddie. I can't wait to see it and what your team can do. And of course, EBI seventeen middleweights from the Muscle Farm HQ, Burbank, California, September twenty ninth. Both Quintet and uh, EBI seventeen will be on Fight Pass. Eddie, I always appreciate your insight and. Can't wait to see what you guys have on Fight Pass. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. There he goes. Uh, And we are not done just yet, ladies and gentlemen, with one more interview to go. She was scheduled to fight Nico Montano on Saturday, but it all fell apart in the end. She is known as Bullet, and she joins us now, I think, on Skype or the phone. I'm not even sure which one. Uh, She's on Skype. Uh, It's uh, Valentina Shevchenko. Let's go to her now. Hi, Valentina. How are you? Hello, Luke. I'm good. Thank you. Um, I appreciate you making some time for us, Valentina. I don't know if you had a chance. Did you hear what Nico said on our show? Uh, Not much, no. Uh, Well, there's a few things I want to get to with that. I just wanted to ask if you had heard, but let's backtrack a bit. How are you feeling? You are, I believe, the first fighter in UFC history that within 24 hours of a title fight 
Uh, you have twice had an opponent fall out. How, how are you feeling? Uh, for now, feeling much better. Yeah, it was very frustrating for me to hear this uh, notice on Friday morning. But now I'm very focused on the, my next step. And uh, I just can't wait when you see come, will come back with a new name, new opponent for me. So I can start my preparation again for the this for this fight for the title. How did you find out that Nico uh, was not going to be able to weigh in? Uh, so in the morning, I had the last part of my weight cut. I had one pound to lose, and I did morning training. I sweat a little bit, and <clears throat> before we, uh, I was ready to go for official weigh-in. Uh, my manager, Roger, he came to our room and said this um, news. So he said that uh, looks like it will be canceled. And um, I was like, no way it's happening again. Uh, how frustrated were you? Of course, uh, it's uh, totally not what I wanted. I wanted to fight. I wanted to finally to have this belt on my in my hands and uh, just perform uh, to show everything from me that I was prepared for to show my skills, to show my technique, to show everything. And first that I had in my mind, it was like replacement. We have to find any replacement, or is it like one hundred percent? And um, I was. For the evening of the same uh, day, of Friday, I was not uh, totally relaxed that it will, it, it's done. I was hoping that it's still, uh, there is a still possibility to find any replacement for make this fight happen. Now, did the UFC offer any names as potential replacements? Uh, I know that they was uh, contacting with top five uh, athletes from my weight class, flyweight, and unfortunately, it was not enough time to make them wait for this fight. So I know that they was trying to do everything their best to make it happen anyway. Uh, I don't know if you heard, uh, Jessica Andrade, who fought in the co-main event, she said that she would have been willing to take the fight at any point. Did you hear about this? You know, already after when it's uh, it, when the things was a little bit more calm, I was uh, I heard something that it was one of the possibilities, but uh, I heard as well that she was one of the first one who checked in with commission, and that's why uh, they didn't allow because she was too uh, too light for this uh, for this fight. Oh, yeah, right, because she's a natural uh, strawweight. This, of course, will be done in a flyweight title fight. All right, um, I am told that the UFC gave you at least some money. Is that true? Yes, uh, my manager there was speaking there, contacting the, with UFC, so I never was worried about this part because I know exactly UFC taking care of all their athletes, and uh, this is part that uh, I'm not worried at all. Uh, did they pay you your full purse? Like, if you had won, did you make the same amount as if you would, ha would have won? I'm sorry, can you repeat, please? In other words, in terms of how much they paid you, was it the same amount as if, let's say, you had fought and won? Uh, you know, this question, like, um, um, I didn't follow up with this one, so I, I know that... Uh, um, 
I know that they are will cover everything, so I didn't follow up with like, okay, make, uh, make the payment right now. This is this is not what I'm worried about. I know that if they are saying their words, they will um, uh, continue with their words and do everything what they are saying. So um, I'm more like worried, not worried, but I'm more exciting and more waiting for the name. This is for me more important, the name. Yeah, let's talk for about the name. Opponent. Fair enough, fair enough. Let's talk about the name. What card are you looking to get on first? Do you, do you think you could get UFC 230? Uh, for me, sooner is better. Uh, you know, like I'm a fighter. My uh, initial purpose is to fight. Of course, everything is important to like answer the media, to speak, uh, like build, create, like everything that we are doing before the fight. But what is our initial purpose? It's a fight. And of course, I want to fight sooner. I'm ready right now. I'm in good shape. So I prepared. I'm still motivated. I didn't lose nothing that I had like a uh, few days before. So uh, this is what I know that you see now uh, in these days, maybe hopefully this week they will come back with some uh, maybe exact dates and maybe with already with some names, exact names. So uh, I just wait and uh, I know that they want to do it before the end of the year, but uh, maybe, I don't know, November for me, it will be good, like right tomorrow. But uh, let's wait for what uh, they have on their mind. A lot of people have said, "Oh, what a great opportunity to get you in an MMA context," because I know you guys have fought in Muay Thai, and I'm sure you've heard this from other interviewers about fighting Joanna and Jacek. Now, I'm going to guess that your answer to a potential fight with her is a is a very strong yes. Uh, yes, why not? Because like I, uh, my response every time it was, and now it's the same. We have our history with Joanna already in MMA, and now we have opportunity to uh, to start to create our history in MMA mixed martial arts under UFC rules. Why not? Do you know if the UFC is interested in that? I don't know yet because I still didn't was uh, didn't speak with them about names. I don't know nothing yet about opponent. For but for me, um, doesn't matter who. I'm ready for anyone, and I really want to fight with a fighter with opponent who wants to fight, who will be able to complete and do everything professional. And I would be very happy to have more professionals uh, to face me. Yes, so, because uh, in this case, I won't be worried about uh, having these problems to um, having someone pull out in the last minute. So you uh, mentioned that you were supposed to fight, fight of course, Nico Montagna. We spoke to her earlier, but as you may have seen, I think uh, on Saturday night, Sunday morning, she put out a statement on Instagram. I want to read just a part of it. Quote, this is her talking, quote, this was the only time I signed a contract so the statements that this egomaniac, she says you, has uh, said are completely false and nowhere near the truth. Her idea of reality is so far-fetched. So the fact that she trained for me three times must mean a couple of things. Number one, she's obsessed with me. And two, she has too much time on her hands. Not only has she been disrespectful and jealous of my efforts and accomplishments and also blocking me on Instagram <laughs> during her first fight, but the fact that she takes pride in kicking a person while they're going through surgery and having her kidney shut down demonstrates what a martial artist should not be. Your response to that, please. 
<laughs> uh, it's it's make me laugh so hard. So it's uh, the most funny pose I ever heard in all my life. So um, um, now she has all the time to speak. So now she can post everything that she wants, everything that she wants to create, like to invent everything. But um, her action showing the same. She had enough time to prepare for the fight. She um, was only she the one, only one who was responsible for weight cut is number one. It was she. She's she know her body. She knows that may um, is it like how it's react. And she was uh, she had to be able to make it earlier to start her weight cut, not coming for the fight week like 20 pounds all over. It's crazy one. Even for the boys, they're cutting much more than girls. It's crazy to come like 20 pounds over uh, for the fight week. You have to start your diet earlier. It be professional. You have to uh, be responsible about what you have in your hands. But this is like total irresponsibility it total unprofessional things from her and now like uh, complain about everything making fault uh, saying that everybody has fault that she now like uh, um, uh, she get what she deserved and actually in fact and uh, now complain it about everything but how i say um what's the first purpose of the fighter why she was signing for you see to fight to make fight fight happen to make responsible to be healthy for the fight to do her main job did she did it no did she do the her, her main job did she fought did she fight with me no she didn't do it so what was she now talking about she now can speak whatever she can have all her like health issues to fix and uh, she will have all time in the world to fix it. And uh, I don't know how much time it, she has to have like, to come back uh, and feel her comfortable to walk in the lighter weight. I don't know, one year, two years, three years. And she was hoping to hold the belt all this time. No, things not happen like, uh, uh, like this in this world. This is highly if you are not uh, able to hold this responsibility and uh, hold this pressure, you have to step out and make to do the job that fighter has to do for the people who are like ready to do it, who are ready to fight and want to fight. This is only one answer, but um, action is action. Speaking is speaking. When you are speaking good, it's okay, but your action, you have to follow. Follow your words if you want to show that you're a real fighter. Hmm. Um, she has said that the reason she accepted the fight in September was because she more or less felt that if she didn't take it in September that they might have taken her title away, and she wanted it in October or November, and that's why she couldn't make weight properly. Do you, do you accept that as a reasonable explanation? <laughs> Of course not. Of course not, because when we just started uh, to speak about possible fights, first that came from uh, their like training camp from her, uh, her team, that 
she maybe uh, will be ready for the fight in May, uh, early June. Then you see send me contract for July 28th, and I sign my part, and we was waiting uh, when, she, where, uh, when she will sign it. And she is the first one who starts to speak about July 7th, having this like contract for July 20th. She starts to speak about uh, fighting in international fight week. So, and she is who's the one like uh, offer this September date. And I said, okay, September. You want September? Let's do September. I can wait. One, I was waiting for so many months. I can wait one month more. So uh, this is things how it was uh, really uh, happened. Now she can invent whatever she wants, and she will do it to. Because she don't have nothing to do now. She don't have a fight. She don't have to fight me. She don't have to fight me in the octagon. Now she will speak much more than she did. Um, lastly, let's say you win the title in your next fight, which I think is probably likely. Um, and let's say Nico works her way up as a contender next year or something like that. Would you be willing to face her at some point down the line if it if that's the if she ends up being the number one contender? Or do you do you not trust her to make it to fight date? No, she will have to deserve the right to fight for the title now. She has to fight. She has to prove that she's come back, and she's like really deserve it. And she has to prove it. She has to face the real big names. The, she has to face uh, this like. Um, she has to test herself now because. Um, she get UC belt very soon, and too, it was very easy for her. She was she was receiving like, and she uh, just cannot appreciate it enough. That's why she was so uh, irresponsible about her weight cut. Maybe this is the fact that why she's acting like she's acting. But of course, in the future, doesn't matter what, doesn't matter what fight, she will have to prove that she is a fighter and she is not just a speaker. Hmm. Uh, well, I am sorry that this has happened to you not once but twice, but you seem like you're in good spirits. I hope that they are able to find an opponent and a card uh, for you very soon because I know that everyone wanted to see that fight and, and um, they want to see you get an opportunity to fight for that title. Uh, Valentina, thank you so much for your time and we look forward to seeing you fight this year. Thank you very much, and I want to say I want to say for all fans who are supporting me, who are uh, wanted to see me fight, who are was who was uh, coming for this fight, and I know a lot of people they were coming because I uh, received and I took pictures after the fight, and they everybody was saying like we was hoping to uh, watch this fight happen. So I just want to say him thank you very much for your support. I really appreciate it. So it doesn't matter that things uh, didn't happen our way this time, but uh, I'm very focused and i in very good shape and very good mood for the next fight. And I hope we will have some good news for you guys. And uh, next fight, and it will be with real person, with real person who wants to fight and we will finally fight and make this fight very excited, is very beautiful, very like... Um, expect it and we will show who we are and uh, I will show that uh, that I will show what I have to show everything that I know from martial arts and finally the good fight and good spirit
We are looking forward to it. Thank you so much for your time, Valentina. Take care. Thank you very much. Have a good day, too. Bye. You, too. All right. There she is. Uh, let us go back to my, um, my little Colombian friend in the back, Danny Segura. Let's throw him up on the screen here if we can. Let's see. Let's see. There he is. All right, Danny. We just did about a gazillion interviews. Yep. <laughs> I wasn't sure if they were all going to happen, but they did. Yeah, they did. They did. So good work back there. Uh, very quickly, we still have to get to the tweets. Are there any other calls that we missed as a matter of record keeping? We missed, we got plenty to go. Um, so I don't know if you want to do tweets now or do a couple of calls. Um, Let's do this. We, I have limited time because, yep. as you know, I have three more hours of radio to do. Fun. Um, let's do, let's pick two calls. Okay. Pick two, um, if there are some evergreen ones, save those. But if there's some really timely ones, sure. let's do that. Well, we just wrapped up with Shevchenko, so let's talk about her. Okay, do it. Dave from Point Pleasant, New Jersey. I just wanted to know who you think Valentina Shevchenko should fight for the women's flyweight title. At this point, I think she's pretty much hands above everybody in the division. I think that she would literally annihilate anybody who's in the top 10. I mean, is the only answer at this point bringing someone in from another weight? What do you think? Um, to me, if you'll recall, Nico Montano's run at, at uh, well, she got the title, but her run generally has been a bit snake-bitten. You'll recall she was supposed to fight Sajara Eubanks. Sajara Eubanks actually out of Washington, D.C. Um, they call her Sarge. And um, she was supposed to fight Nico Montano and had a weight cut issue, I believe. And so they brought in at the last minute Roxanne Modafferi. She just got a win, Sajara Eubanks did, over Lauren Murphy, I believe. So I would go with her. Um, I think she's probably the most deserving contender. I think she's ranked pretty high in that division. That, to me, is my answer. Danny, you got a different one? You know, um, I guess, yeah, uh, Eubanks is, is a good option. Um, some people have thrown out there, Yana and Jacek. You know, I mentioned it on the MMA beat. It's not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Uh, I'd be open to that. Yeah, I just have a bit of an issue with her cutting the line. Yeah. But, it, you know, it, promotionally, I can't deny what it would do. Yeah. Right. And at this point, I feel like anybody you plug in into that equation is, is basically fine. I think that the biggest factor is getting Valentina to fight. She's the rightful person to be challenging for that I have fight. to say, though, if Nico finds a way back to the cage and can stay healthy and can win and earn a title shot, yeah, assuming that Valentina's champion, which I think is a fairly safe assumption at that point, uh, kind of size to see the fight. What a grudge match, huh? Oh, yeah, that would be something for sure. All right, yeah, what else? That would be a nice buildup. Um, we, we have a few other questions, but I'm going to pick this one just because... Uh, Time constraints, yes? Yeah. So let, let's talk about Hi, some two old vets. Hi, my name is Bill O'Brien. I'm calling from Newfoundland, New Jersey. I just had a quick question for you, Luke. I just wanted to know your favorite Diego Sanchez and Jim Miller fights and memories. And also, actually, if um, if you think that training with the high-level grapplers from, like, Kenzo's team has helped guys like Sterling and Zabit, uh, Mega Merit Sheripov. All right, thank you for taking my call, and have a great day. Jersey in the house. Yeah, I, I think um, let's answer the first part. Uh, I don't know if we want to get to the second. Sure. Uh, I forgot. Uh, the second part was about uh, the grappling, yes? Yeah. For, um, what was the first part? I'm sorry, I forgot. Uh, what was your favorite memory oh, for, uh, for Diego, Diego Sanchez? Sanchez. Diego Sanchez is a very easy one. Yeah. Uh, number one, the when he walked out to La Bamba. Um, yeah, again, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's yeah, so, yeah. I mean, woof, I mean it's, it's this deeply cultural moment that he had. Because La Bamba is the interesting uh, song because it's for the Hispanic Americans who lived in America. Mm -hmm. It's not a song that's like, if you're from Colombia, that someone is here playing. Right. It's actually from 
those people. So it's a, it's a really important song for that community. I, I gave the chills, but really it's not that actually. It was after the fight with Martin Kim and his face was a disaster. And there's a famous scene, they have it on video. I don't know if there's anywhere you can find it, but I remember seeing it. Both Dana and Lorenzo went backstage to go see him and his face was nearly falling off because it was so cut. Yeah. And he was talking about his corazón, heart. Yeah. Um, and they were just blown away and I was too. It was as if nothing had happened to him other than his face was destroyed. It was it was it was perfect Diego Sanchez. Yeah. Um I liked when he brought the the mariachi band um into the octagon, remember that? I don't actually. He did. Uh it was one of his early fights, the Nick Diaz fight. I mean, early Diego Sanchez when he was undefeated the Joe Riggs fight. Um he he just looked like a killer, man. He was fun to watch. And uh remember when he walked out with the cross? Yes. And he was the just Jake like, yes. the Jake Ellenberger yes. fight. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he has so many good moments. So For many. Jim Miller, I'm not sure. He's kind of had a bunch of good ones. Joe Lazon fight. Joe Lazon fight was a good one. He had a, a, a who's the Brazilian guy he armbarred, I forget now. Um he's had a bunch of really good ones. Nothing that was like quite as uh antic filled and crazy. Yeah. But nevertheless pretty good. I I I'm sorry I'm doing Jim Miller a disservice. I'm not a fair historian of Jim Miller. Um, was it Diego Ferreira that he armbarred? Who was it? I think it? so. Here, let me, let me pull I, I have I have forgotten since then, but um, obviously, you know, you're 30 fights deep. Some of them get lost a little bit in the shuffle because that's so that's such an incredible body of work. What do you have here? Who was the armbarring? Um, it was fairly recent. All right, this is terrible air. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I can't. We can come back to it. We can oh, uh, Fabricio Camoish. Camoish, that's it. Camoish, yep. yeah. Um, all right, well, look. Maybe we'll have some time next show to get some of these other questions. Yeah. I apologize we couldn't get to all of them. The show got kind of, uh, I don't know, got a little bit, dis we had to change everything at the last minute, but we worked it out, Danny. We did. Uh, oh, no tweets then, I guess. All right. Well. <laughs> Do you have time? Yeah, I got time. All right, let's yeah. do it. Yeah. Well, you guys are just killing the tweets. We're getting the tweets in. All right, let's, do, let's it. do it. Five minutes of tweets, okay? A round of tweets. Let's do that now. All right. Let's do it. You got five minutes. Let's go. Let's go. Put it on the clock. No, put it on the clock. Here we go. We're waiting. We're going to figure this out in real time. It's all good. I'm waiting. Put the clock up there. Put the tweets up there. We'll make this happen. I got to take care of our tweeters, Danny. Yeah. Hold on one second. All right. All right. Here we go. Here's the clock. Show me them tweets, dog. We'll get this going. Here we go. Hope you had a great time on vacation. I'm happy you are back. And I look forward to the MMA on the MMA beat. Well, thank you, Buretic Jossip. Is that a real name? I don't know, but I have to say I appreciate everyone's uh, patience on my vacation, and I'm back and ready to rock next. Uh, okay, why no comments from Dana after UFC 228? No summary at presser, and not even the customary backstage interview with Olivi for FS1 or for the UFC channel, but for, the, for that matter. Seems ridiculous, but any chance this is related to his relationship with Tyron Woodley? As we discussed previously, I have no idea. I don't know why he didn't make it. Maybe there's a really good explanation, in which case, it's, as I mentioned before, it's just unfortunate that he couldn't be there. But I think you heard what um, Dean Thomas had to say. You got to get out there and you got to do something about it. You got to send some kind of message publicly about how great he looked because he did. The guy deserves more than just a ceremonial pat on the back. He deserves to have some wind at his back as well promotionally. If, if not now, then never, right? So next. Uh, okay. Uh, with fighters like Till and Nganu, does the UFC push their up-and-coming stars too far too fast, or are the divisions thick enough that they don't need to focus as much on cultivation of stars because a new fighter will fill the void? It's a little bit of both. Here's the problem. There is a bit of the UFC, as I mentioned before, part of just getting – 
part of identifying a contender is just difficult, right? Even if you have good intentions. But the reality is also that these guys do get pushed a little bit too far too fast. And there's a lot of different things happening. Nico Montano said she wasn't ready to fight in September. If you believe her, and I certainly take her at her word. She wanted it in October or November. But I think the UFC said, no, we have a card we have to fill. Remember, they want to do Colby Covington versus Tyron Woodley. And thank God Tyron Woodley won because they still can. But because he wasn't ready, they just went ahead and made the till fight. You're noticing that the fighters who can accommodate their schedule, they're getting preferential treatment in terms of booking but i don't know if that's ultimately good for them in the end in the end what they need is that appropriate amount of maturation um to get their skill sets in order and to get the right next fight as they develop and i think um if you have to constantly fill a calendar full of shows getting that properly manicured is going to be difficult next i've seen a lot of people describe till's loss as embarrassing Considering the improvements fighters such as Whitaker made when they moved up, how do you see Till's future playing out? Thanks. Yeah, he's 25 years old. And look, it wasn't a great showing. Uh, I don't think it was a disaster or, or embarrassing. I wouldn't say that either. But it was not a great showing, right? You only landed two punches. And um, and in the end, I don't think even he would look back and, and say it was a good showing for him. It wasn't. It was not a good showing. But But it would be super, super foolish to suggest that that is the uh, utmost limit of his ability it would be super foolish to say even in his next fight he wouldn't show dramatic improvement it would be super foolish to say he couldn't be a title contender look you got to call balls and strikes was that a good performance it was not a good performance and i don't think that's any big secret and i don't think that's being unfair it's being fair it just wasn't great it wasn't great but it wasn't a disaster um, he did take some big shots but he didn't take anything so substantial he didn't tear an acl he didn't break an arm he can get back out there get a few stitches uh, take a little bit of time to figure out what he needs to do right the next time and get back out there and do it. He's got plenty of time to get better. He is probably going to go up to middleweight, where it's his division where I think he can grow the right way. He will be okay. It's fine. And and it's only embarrassing uh, in the sense that I know he probably fell well short of his own expectations and maybe some other people's as well. But look, you make yourself vulnerable to the world, and sometimes good things happen, sometimes bad things happen. But it's all about writing that next chapter. Next. Uh, thoughts on Eric Silva signing with Bellator and him being an alternate in the welterweight tournament. Don't have a whole lot to say other than it makes sense for Bellator. They want to make a bigger splash into Brazil. He's exciting. Makes sense. Next. Uh, can the Anthony Pettis fight be considered a tune-up fight for Tony Ferguson? No. Do you think Pettis would deserve a title shot if he beats him? Big fan from Brazil. Thank you, Gustavo. No, a tune-up fight would be somebody who you just know the other person could beat, and it would take a miracle for them to lose. That is not who Anthony Pettis is. He's a formal title contender. That would not be fair at all. In fact, I mean, Tony Ferguson, that's a very tough fight to come back from. There's nothing to tune up about it. Um, would, would Pettis deserve a title shot if he beats him? Mm, I don't know. Over well, if, if not of Dustin Party, he beats Nate Diaz, but close. Next, one more. True or false? Roy McDonald definitely is not the best welterweight in the world because he was dominating his last two fights in the UFC. No, I would say that's false. He has uh, undergone a lot of uh, healing. I think he's continuing to get better. He, too, is still young, what, 27 years old, something like that, maybe even 26. So uh, maybe at that time he wasn't the best welterweight, but these things all fluctuate. It's like stock. All right, there we go. Now we are done. Big thanks to Danny Segura. Big thanks to everybody in the back. Sorry for my vacation, but it's over. And until next time, everybody, stay frosty. <laughs>